This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Monday morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. We are once again Dr. Mattless. But uh, don't despair. He'll be back soon. And uh, his surgery went well. And we're joined here again today, of course, by... Uh, my, I'm Jeff Simpson, by the way. <laughs> Terry South is here with me, as is Cole Wissinger. Cole, we want to thank you for coming in today. We know that uh, it was a surprise for you. Any morning for you, Jeff. But, you know, you were well-rested. You and I were talking about this before the start of the show, that yes. you got 13 hours of sleep Last Friday. So last, oh the end of last week, I came in uh, to help out because Matt was uh, doing his thing. Mm-hmm. And then we also had media day on Friday. That was a bit of a long day here at the office for me because um, I juggle a lot of the sports stuff in addition to doing some Matt Townsend stuff for you as well. And I was a little bit tired. And yeah, really, um, I got home at the end of my day and between Friday and Saturday day, um, I slept for about 13 and a half hours. Wow. That is a foreign concept. 13 hours. Terry, have you ever gotten... Do you get 13 hours of sleep between two nights sleep? No. Man. Cole, that's criminal. That's what that is. It's questionable if I get 12. Yeah. It just depends. It just depends on the day. It's good to be young. See, and of course, on Friday, we talked about beds and Cole's getting 13 hours of sleep. So usually we talk a lot about food and I get hungry, but now I'm just tired. No, sorry. My bed is pretty good. I didn't even try the floor (laughs) sleeping. Didn't need it. Yeah. Well, we actually are going to talk about food today because today is chocolate pudding day. I'm not a huge fan, but I know a lot of people enjoy the snack pack. Um, Not me. Um, How does that (laughs) – you go to the store. Yes. And the Jell-O pudding isn't – you know, it comes in the snack pack. It's Mm -hmm. not always refrigerated. Yeah. How does that work? Well, I think you're supposed to refrigerate it once you open it. Well, I know, but how does opening the package now unbreak this magical barrier that now requires refrigeration where before it's just sitting on the shelf? Also, who can't manage to finish one snack pack in one sitting that they need to refrigerate it in between? <laughs> right. That's another good point. So how – It's kind of like the boxed milk, how the boxed milk can sit on the, the shelf. Yeah. Or the, the, the cheese-like product that will sit there on cheese the shelf. Cheese Whiz? You're uh, a fan of the Cheese Whiz. It's Velveeta. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. It's a cheese-like product. You read Comes it, it in a says box. it's – it doesn't say this, but it's essentially cheese-adjacent. <laughs> right? Adjacent it's to not, cheese. It's huh? not cheese, but yeah, it's close. It's how in does, the vicinity. How does that just sit there on the shelf? But mm. like real cheese has to be refrigerated. Miracle Whip and Mayo follow the same arbitrary rule. Yeah. Set on the shelf, you open it, all of a sudden it needs refrigeration. I think we're I think there's there's a line of danger that we're just sort of playing with there. And we're not huh. we're not really aware of this. It's like eh, it's just like a, a pudding cup. Who cares? But we have to refrigerate it the second we get it home, right? Oh, yeah. Or do you just leave it in the cupboard? Oh, no. You usually go straight to the fridge. But it was ne- you picked it up off just on the spice aisle or wherever it was, right? It's just sitting on the shelf. 
Well, it's kind these, of these are the things that I get very perplexed about as I grocery shop. It's on kind Saturdays. of like an abandoned pet. You need to get it home and start treating it like a real pet as soon as possible. Wow. So it may not be at that may have been a stretch, but it may not be real dairy. But the sooner you start treating it like dairy, the better so for all the, involved. The pudding is feral until you bring it home and domesticate it. Yes, okay. you got to domesticate it. Domesticate your pudding. <laughs> all right. Oh my goodness! Um, are you, you're not going to mention the the box office numbers for Transformers, are you? No, because the movie, the reason that was the fifth one, right? Mm-hmm. Every, the first one got okay ratings. The rest of them have been horrible. And when you watch them, they're just there's no sense to them. There's just sort of chaos. There's cut scenes that don't make sense. But it doesn't matter because you're of robots fighting robots, and that's really what it all comes down to. It'll make its money all over the world, no problem. No matter what. Yeah. So, do you think Michael Bay is phoning it in, or do you think he is? This is like art to him. This is his art. He really takes it seriously. He understands. What he's, I mean, really what he's trying to do. There's certain aspects, certain steps. There's these certain camera shots he gets. There's a show called The Last Ship on Mm -hmm. TNT. Mm -hmm. He is the executive producer of that thing. Usually they throw a big name on there, but they really have nothing to do with the show. But you watch that show. It's like an it's like Transformers, except it's like the Navy. <laughs> you know, you they have these long, beautiful glamour shots of ships and big military formations and all this kind of stuff. And everyone's tough because you know in this show everyone's tough. Yeah, and it's just this is the way Michael Bay does his art, right? And yeah, you can figure. I mean, at one point I think he was making music videos. Sounds and they about just right. Sort of translated it into movies, mm-hmm. and it works. It doesn't leave you with like. Anything like of a masterpiece, except <laughs> of that genre he's created for himself. Now, some wait a of the stuff's but pretty interesting. Is to this watch. what he really wants to be doing? Like, has he worked he his makes, whole life? Has he been doing those music videos and Pearl know. Harbor and everything yeah. just to get to the point he makes, where he can sit back and make Transformers? There's so movies. much money he is making off these. Oh yes, just millions of dollars. So, is he okay with it? He seems to be delivering a product that somebody wants to watch. You know, yeah. And Cole, that's a good point. You know, usually you do the big budget movie so that you can afford to do the art house movie that'll get you the award. The passion project. But yeah, I think Michael Bay and does all the others so he can do the Transformer he saves movie. So much money on really not having a script or a plot or any sort of <laughs> idea where it's going. Just blow stuff up and keep moving. Yeah. Now wait a minute. Transformers meets the Navy. Wasn't that Battleship basically? No. No? That was an alien invasion. Oh. Which you totally get that when you play the game. I love the game. And you're like B6, you're thinking, well, there's aliens here. Plus it reminds you to take your vitamins. It does. Anyway, so uh, Terry, why don't you tell us what's going on around the rest of the country? No less than 18 large wildfires are burning in the west and southwest regions of the U.S. aggravated by extreme heat and a lack of rain. The two largest blazes are in Utah and Arizona, but there are also fires in California, New Mexico, Nevada, and Oregon. Wildfires have burned more than 2.5 million acres in the United States in 2017 alone, about 1 million acres more than is typical for this time of year. In Utah, 800 people have been evacuated, 13 homes have been burned. That fire began June 17th and is only 5% contained. Wow. And uh, I read there's a 62 miles burn scar oh my where goodness. this fire is just just plowing right through this area of uh, southern Utah where there's you, a lot of heat Do you think they're going to do you think they're going to crack down on firework usage for the 4th of July? 
I don't know. They have passed recent laws here in the, the state of Utah where you can now fire off the rockets that probably cause more damage than anything. Right else in your neighborhood, right on your cul-de-sac. I mean, it just it does. You'd think it's very dry. Yeah. You may want to not, you know, light off fireworks. You may cause more fires, but I think what they're doing is containing them to the urban areas, Mm -hmm. and uh, you can't go into the mountains and blow them up that way. Makes sense. Uh, New stats about America's opioid epidemic. About as many Americans are expected to die this year of drug overdoses, overdoses that died in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan wars combined. Seriously. The drug overdoses are now the leading cause of death for Americans under the age of 50. Last year, there were more than 236 million prescriptions written for opioids in the United States. That's about one bottle of opioids for every American adult. Wow. A New York Times investigation published uh, this month estimated that more than 59,000 Americans died in 2016 of drug overdoses in the largest annual jump in such deaths ever recorded in the U.S. Mm. So that's crazy. One bottle of opioids for every American adult is how many were prescribed last year. Oh, my goodness. Which is crazy. That's staggering. The Justice Department is trying to take its uh, drawn-out fight with Microsoft over law enforcement's access to emails stored in an overseas server to the Supreme Court. Major tech companies are watching this case closely. If the Supreme Court takes the case, the outcome would have far-reaching effects on how tech firms store user data on foreign servers and how law enforcement can access it as more and more of our data is stored in the cloud by companies with data centers around the world. The question of how governments, both U.S. and abroad, can access the data is becoming increasingly complicated. So Microsoft has a server, say in like Ireland or something, on the you know mm-hmm. outside the U.S. and the government comes to them and says, "We want this email," and they go, "Well, physically, it's in another country. So what does that mean?" Huh? And so there's this legal argument over who actually controls the email, yeah. who has access to it, and does it being in another country have effect on law enforcement's access to it? Mm. And so they're. That's kind of a sticky situation. But then it comes back to, you know, user privacy. What does the corporation need to do to make sure? Because the second the government can get the email, then that people start advertising against them, saying that if you have that email, then you're not secure. And and so they lose customers. Wasn't there something with Apple where uh, the government was trying to access a uh, terrorist Account. It was the San Bernardino yes, shooter. He had an iPhone. Right. They're trying to get into it. And Ample was like, if we let you into it, you're going to have this backdoor for everyone's phone. Right. And that compromises our entire you know, uh, concept of saying that your data is secure with us if we just oh. give the government access to the phone. So there's this whole fight over that that's still going on. The uh, FBI apparently paid a ton of money and got access to that phone. And yeah, it was like an iPhone four, iPhone five. So, see, it's crazy because that's that's the type of thing that in real life would be really scary. But you know, when it's on TV and Jack Bauer is trying to get things done oh, does, yeah. with no regard to the law, then we're all for it. You but know, he only had twenty four hours, so yeah. everything's justified <laughs> on that show. It's yeah. great. Uh, social networking giant Facebook is moving its ambitions and TV quality video to the front burner, taking meetings and making deals with an eye towards launching a slate of original programming by the end of the summer. People familiar with the matter said in meetings with the major talent agencies, including Creative Artists, uh, Creative Artist Agency, United Talent Agency, William Morris Endeavor, and International Creative Management Partners. Apparently, those are some big names in Hollywood talent. Facebook has indicated it's willing to commit to production budgets as high as $3 million per episode. 
Three million per episode. For these shows they want to put together. Oh, my goodness. That's more expensive than an episode of Breaking Bad. Or I think it's it about is. the same. Yeah. Wow. So they're looking to put out, I mean, for, for unproven TV shows. Oh, my goodness. Just throw that money out there. They're, it's kind of the, the approach that Netflix has taken, right? Yeah. But Netflix kind of had a couple shows. and they went, Oh, we can do this. So they started throwing money at something that was working. Or Facebook is going to throw money at something that maybe it isn't working it's yet. It's totally unproven. Wow. So that you would watch your TV on Facebook. You know, we've pitched a few ideas on the Matt Townsend show that Matt has not gone for. Right. I'm wondering if they would go over very well at Facebook. I, apparently. We'll pay $3 million an episode. So. See, the Happy Garden could use a $3 million budget. We could. <laughs> All those ficas and ferns and, yeah. What do you think? Would you, at this point in your life... Watch TV on Facebook. No. Would you tune in weekly to watch some program on Facebook? No. Hmm. I mean, it would have to get really good reviews and gain a really strong following. And I, even even then, I mean, I have like half a million other shows to watch on other streaming devices and cable and DVD. and. See, and I never thought that I would go to a YouTube account. Like on a regular basis to watch, uh, you know, installments of whatever this person puts out on their entry in their blog yeah. entry. And I watch. There's one guy I watch. Like, all, I he puts like ten things out a week, right? So I don't keep up with it. But every once in a while, I jump in and I watch five or six in a row. And you, it keeps track of where you are. And so you just stay in order and just keep moving through how he puts how he you know how he yeah. puts them out there. And it's like so I'm watching these episodes of this guy's show and I'm I'm, I'm sitting there what was it last week I was sitting at home I'm like wow I'm wa- basically watching TV on YouTube now. <laughs> like, how did that happen? Yeah, I'm I'm more of a selfish Facebook user in that I generally only go on to Facebook when I need to look up somebody's name or you know I just when I need something right. But yeah, I wouldn't. I think the only thing we watch regularly on Facebook is that uh, New Age guy, uh, JP Sears, the guy with the long red hair hmm. that always does, you know, things about GMOs and gluten. You ever heard of it? No, not oh. at all. <laughs> Millions of views. <laughs> Just like, but yeah. yeah. Well, that's the other thing. There's things that have huge following that vast majorities of the country have no idea it exists. Yeah. Right. So uh, you're explaining that. There's probably a lot of people out there going, yeah, I've watched that. Me, I've never seen it. But generally, when people are, are going on to Facebook, they're just, they're just scrolling down the list of right. people's posts. Now, theoretically, if Facebook does this, this would be something they just pin to the top. And so as you open up your Facebook, whatever time you do that, it's right there so you can see it. They've done that yeah. with me because I follow a lot of sports topics. I'm yeah, just, they do like whenever uh, Facebook has done a, a live streaming event of that way, it's right yeah. there at the top. So that's probably not too much of a stretch if people are already watching longer content on Facebook Live. Right. So, hmm, I don't know, $3 million, that better be good. Of course, I mean, the, the one feature they have is autoplay where the video just starts. First thing I shut off. Really? Go into the settings, dig around, turn off autoplay. But the sound's not on. So you just have to tolerate the video. Yeah, I don't want as you scroll either. down. I'll, I'll make the choice if I want to watch that. Or not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's just like those websites when you you log on to a website and it's somebody's business and a commercial starts playing immediately. I'm not a big fan of those. 
Anyway, Facebook, $3 million an episode for a TV show on Facebook? As Matt Townsend would say if he were here, what is this world coming to? Anyway, we'll find out the answer to that question when we return, because we're speaking with our Washington insider, Joe Cannon, who's going to be talking to us about a very eventful weekend. When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away recuperating. And uh, we're going to be speaking with our Washington insider, Joe Cannon, who was the uh, chairman of the Utah Republican Party from 2002 to 2006. And he's also the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation. Uh, You can look it up at fuelfreedom.org. And he's here with us this morning. Joe Cannon, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So right off the bat, since Matt is not here, you probably have an idea of what I want to talk to you about before we get into all the politics. Any guesses? uh, (laughs) uh, Well, this is today. Actually, I think today will be the final day of the Supreme Court term. And so there's a lot of things on, uh, on the docket here that could be very interesting. Well, that that's that's clo- not really close, but that's okay. We'll okay. get into that in a second. Did you see well, the game last the, night? The, the, well, I didn't see it because it was on Sunday, but 10 in a row. Insane. The are hot. They are hot. They are fast approaching Houston with yeah. their, you know, best record in baseball. Yeah. They're one game behind. And, you know, the, the, the crazy thing is, Cody Bellinger hitting two home runs in a game is kind of old hat by now, but the fact that they scored five runs off of four wild pitches from the same pitcher, that was pretty amazing. No, it's good. The last weekend was crazy. Like I said, I didn't see the game. I saw the box score. It yeah. Interesting. But, but like on Saturday, they had uh, Chase Utley playing first base, Corey Ballinger, Ballinger playing left field. They had... Uh, oh, Oh, I forgot the catcher's name. Uh, Grendahl? Grendahl? Not Grendahl, no, the backup guy. Barnes? Was it Barnes? Yeah, Barnes. I think he was playing like second base or something. I don't know. It was was a very uh, interesting uh, lineup. But, yeah, no, they're hot. Their bats are very strong. The The only big fear is do they have enough in their starting pitchers to get all the way through postseason. That's the big fear. Yep. Well, their their reliever is doing amazing things. He hit a he hit a an RBI double last night too. So the, now the bet their their uh, yeah their relievers are hot. They're really good. The question is, they have enough starters to get him into the sixth, seventh, and eighth innings. Oh. Besides Kershaw, yeah, Even Kershaw, Kershaw. More than half of the runs he's given up, which admittedly aren't very many, but more than half of them have been home runs. Yep. Just kind of odd for a pitcher of his caliber. So, well, we'll see what happens. They're like you said, they're hot right now. So, uh, you mentioned the Supreme Court session that that ends this week. What can you tell us about that, or what what is it that we need to know about that? Well, uh, this is uh, kind of a particularly exciting. There, there are actual decisions which we should talk about, but then in, in the background of all this, there are a lot of rumors that uh, Justice Kennedy after nearly 30 years on the court, 29 years, um, could retire. 
there's no evidence of that. We'll come back to that in a sec. But the, I want to talk about a, a recent Supreme Court decision, not the ones that are going to happen today, that was kind of important. It's called, the, it's called in the media the Slant case. It's actually a guy named Simon Tan formed a rock group of Asians, and they called themselves the Slants. And that was deemed by the Patent Trademark Office as being politically offensive. Therefore, they couldn't, they wouldn't give him a uh, their group a, a trademark. So that went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court. So it, it, in and of itself, it's it's not particularly significant. But the Supreme Court ruled eight zero. It's a unanimous decision. Gorsuch didn't hear the case, so he didn't participate. But they they. They eight uh, zero in favor of Mr. Tan. Basically, the holding was that speech may not be banned on the ground that it expresses ideas that affront, you know, that affront people or offend people. And so, so basically, it was it's a, a, a case of in the in the narrow sense about could the government enforce some politically correct idea but the broader implications of this case are, are pretty significant uh, well by, by the way well it was eight zero on that issue the particular issue there were all kinds of other opinions filed well, well wait a sec the government still has the right to look at labeling laws you know for health and safety yeah but but the core of the case was uh this free speech not political correctness so the first <laughs> At once it was announced that most of the papers uh, played up the Washington Redskins, because you might remember right. that Senator Reid had said the Patent and Trademark Office is going to deny the Redskins their trademark on that because it's offensive. Well, that is clearly shut down, and you had all fans and owners of uh, the Redskins rejoicing. Also, the Cleveland Indians yeah. were in a bit of trouble. But maybe the broader implication of this for all of us is that this could end up affecting so-called speech codes, hate speech, safe spaces on campuses that are state-owned. We just recall, listeners should recall, uh, the First Amendment only applies to government institutions. So... You know, hmm. a private college could do whatever it wants in this regard. But but if you're uh, UCLA, if you're Berkeley, if you're uh, SUNY in New York, these states all are governed by the First Amendment. Yeah, and many of them have these speech codes, and they define certain things as hate speech, and they pre- prohibit, in some cases, conservative speakers from coming on campus. So there are all kinds of implications of this. And when you get back to that holding, it's pretty general. Under the First Amendment, speech may not be banned on the ground that it expresses ideas that offend. That is a, a big, huge ruling in, in, First Amendment, uh, in the First Amendment ru- world. Hey, so that's, that's, yeah. that, that's just so interesting that, uh, you know, it would be Tan's case that would make it to the to the Supreme Court because I've I've heard of so many bands and team names that are much more offensive than that. So that's really interesting that it would be that case to be taken to the Supreme Court. Yeah, the court, I mean, the court chooses, uh, you know, gets 
thousands of cases are submitted for review. It only accepts a, a handful, basically, a yeah. hundred or so cases. And I think they chose this one because it, it teed up the issue very clearly in the case where the government was trying to mandate a certain kind of speech. So, yeah, it's an interesting case uh, with pretty broad implications. Uh, anyway, the, there are two other cases pending before we talk about Justice Kennedy that that are going to be decided one way or the other today. One is called the Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia, Missouri, against Comer. And that looks at can, you know, whether the exclusion of churches from an otherwise neutral and secular aid program violates free exercise where the state is complicated, where the state doesn't have an establishment clause concern. We'll talk about that. But but basically, there are 39 states that have constitutional provisions that ban, prohibit, bar taxpayer funds from going to any religious schools. Hmm. These are, these were passed, actually, oh, some in the 1800s, some in the uh, early 1900s, basically to prohibit uh, states from giving any aid or benefit at all to Catholic schools. There's the so-called Blaine Amendments guy, a candidate for presidency named James G. Blaine, but he was also a senator, and I don't actually honestly know how these his name got attached to this, the so-called Blaine Amendments that prohibit Mainly, they were they were anti-Catholic in nature. Yeah, but they, they've been broadened out to be to affect all uh, religious schools, and so this case is, is again it's fairly prosaic in, in its facts. Basically, Missouri has a, a a program where they give money to schools to rubberize their uh, playgrounds make it safer for kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this this school uh, applied, Trinity Lutheran applied, and they were denied because they were a religious school. They said, well, wait a second, there's no, there's no establishment clause thing, there's no religious implication here, we're talking about the safety of yeah. kids on the playground. State said, um, too bad, you're a religious school, and we have this constitutional amendment that says no no money could go to you for that. So they sued, and um, they get to the Supreme Court. In an interesting wrinkle, the state uh, actually subsequently to the case reversed itself and said, okay, no, we will give the money. But the court, so one of the issues the court had to say was, well, is this case moot? Can we even hear this case? But they said, because the state can undo what it's done, this is still a, quote, a ripe issue for adjudication. Anyway, that decision is going to happen today, you know, probably in an hour or so. Oh, wow. Um, the Nina Totenberg, who, uh, who is uh, on National Public Radio, was at the hearing, and her view and the view of most people there was that all the questioning or most of the questioning from all of the judges, I mean, you, you can see another, you can see a 9-0 decision here, too, um, basically saying no, if you've got a religiously neutral uh, program that is denied religious schools, then you got a problem. Oh, so sure. I, I, you, no one knows how it's going to come out, but the the thinking is is that this will this will lean in favor, and so that affects directly 39 states. 
but now it, it, it affects lots of other things because many, 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 many school programs uh, are, are religiously neutral but provide uh, funding, they provide uh, buildings, materials, other things for schools that could be religious, that are religious. So ah, that's it has a big case. Broader, broader implications than the, than the very narrow. It's a, it's a very big uh, First Amendment religious liberty case. And you said that they would should have a decision within the hour or two, right? Could be. Yeah, today is wow. day. So the Supreme Court always announces, finishes announcing its decisions by the end of June, and Monday is their day. So, you know, I think they think it starts at 10 o'clock Eastern. Maybe it's a little later. Yeah. That decision. So, and ju- then I, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Break. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say there's another. There, there are also the travel ban cases uh, that have not to be decided on the merits, but you know there have been rulings in the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit, uh, and actually the Ninth Circuit hasn't issued its decision, so only the Fourth Circuit, which is Virginia and the kind of Mid Atlantic states ruled against President Trump on his travel ban, the uh, government, the, the federal government, has appealed that. It's actually they're seeking what's called certiorari, or letting, they want the, the Supreme Court to hear the case. So they've asked, A, for the court to hear the case. That takes only four justices. Four justices have to agree to hear a case that it's granted appeal. The government also asked, however, for for the uh, the court to stay the effect of these uh, circuit decisions, and that takes five justices for a stay. So that's going to it's very likely. Now the court could just ignore that altogether, but given that it's the federal government, given you've got circuits uh, courts of ruling rendering decisions on it, given that it's a timely issue, given that it affects the you know, the powers of the president, there's a kind of a separation of powers that you're in my mind, in the minds of lots of people that that augurs for the fact that the Supreme Court will say something today. And I think almost everyone expects them to grant review uh, to be determined on whether you get a fifth justice to stay the lower court proceedings. But anyway, that's on the docket for today, too. So could be kind of a big day. Crazy day, yeah. Joe, let's do this. Let's take a break. We, we've talked about uh, the Supreme Court and the religious freedom case. Um, talked a little bit about the travel ban case as well. When we come back, let's let's uh, move on to the Senate health bill and, and also the Georgia election. Interesting stuff. Very eventful day. And uh, we're going to continue our discussion here with Joe Cannon, our Washington insider. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Joe Cannon, our Washington insider. And uh, before the break, we we talked a little bit about uh, some of the cases that were going to the Supreme Court. And we're hoping, Joe, that we could now talk to you about the Senate health bill. Joe, is this this something that Trump is more interested in in getting pushed through quickly or getting done right? (laughs) My guess is that uh, he's interested in getting it done and behind him. I, I don't know 
quite right is, since he's actually criticized the House bill as being, quote, mean, close quote. And somebody asked a follow-up to Spicer, I guess, last week, and he said, no, no, the president meant what he said. Yeah, it's, it's mean. So there's the House bill that he's been a little critical of. On the other hand, I think you'd like to be able to say we've done this, and and uh, that's kind of complicated. That's uh, wh- whether that can happen or not uh, is hard to say. So you've got you you know you've got the Senate bill that uh, uh, the, the leader McConnell dropped last week, basically on Thursday. Said here here it is, anyone could look at it. Uh, it, it got a lot of criticism. Keep in mind, you need at least 51 votes yeah. to get this bill passed. Um, he said, and he says recently, uh, last over the weekend, he wants to get this voted on this week. And so this is a very massive, complicated bill. And at least five Republican senators have come out, I'm going to say, I'm going to put it in quotes, against it, because... There are varying degrees of intensity and reasoning behind that. But, but the five are Utah's own Senator Mike Lee, uh, Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, uh, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. Ron, Senator Johnson is more of a, uh, a libertarian. And then also uh, Senator Dean Heller from Nevada has, has indicated he's against it. And he he is the only he, he is up for re-election this year, uh, or not this year, next year in in eighteen, and he is the only Republican senator running uh, in a state that was won by Hillary Clinton. So she took, oh wow uh, she took Nevada. So he is walking a very uh, tight political right you know, uh, tightrope there because. You know, he need, he's Republican. He's in a blue state. His state also opted for Medicare expansion under Obamacare, where the state's got a lot of money for a certain amount of time to expand their uh, health care under Medicaid, I should say. So, so these Medicaid expansion states, a lot of their Republicans in those states, and they're worried if money's cut off, that will hurt them politically so you, you've so, got those five that are you got those five republicans that are in in total opposition of it and then you've got a handful of others too right that that have strong reservations about this exactly you, you've got susan collins you've got lisa murkowski you've got uh cory gardner uh you've got rob portman those are all pretty important senators that also have similar kinds of concerns but but just to be fair, they have not come out and said no yet. And right. my my feeling is this: this is just a feeling. For, oh, I, I do know one thing: there are going to be no Democrat votes. For at yeah. one point, uh, uh, people thought maybe Senator Manchin from West Virginia, who's also who's a Democrat running in a very very red state, might uh, be supportive. But he has supported the president on a number of things, including judicial appointments, but I have a, like a totally firsthand source that, that says there's no way that Manchin is going to vote for this bill. So there are going to be no Democrat votes. you got five against. You can only afford to lose two, uh, maybe three votes, I guess two votes, and then then it's a tie, then, then Pence can vote as the president of the Senate. So anyway, I don't mean to get in that detail. So you got 
McConnell has to satisfy the concerns, as you point out, at least five senators and possibly more who haven't actually come out and they're doing their negotiating behind the scenes. Okay, all that's on one side. On the other side, you've got a very wily, very smart majority leader in, in Senator McConnell, and he, I just don't see how he's pushing so hard for a vote this week if he doesn't think he can get there by making deals with, with uh, some or all of these senators. Yeah. And some of the opposition is soft. I mean, Senator Lee has said, well, look, a little more flexibility to the states would bring me along. Senator Cruz, who's kind of a hardliner in a lot of things, has said he would like to get to victory here. So, I mean, there's been some signaling going on that something could work for at least some of these folks. But but maybe not before the 4th of July weekend. Maybe, yeah, maybe not. I mean, I, I, I heard, uh, saw Senator Cornyn say that that they're, they might be looking to get it done after the August, uh, or between now and the August recess. So they, they come back after the 4th of July for a little while. So there's there's some possibility that if it doesn't happen now, it could happen, you know, before the August recess. But I don't know. Um, you got a pretty wily guy on one side, and you've got some other people on the other side. And then, by the way, that only gets you the Senate bill, which, although it's patterned after the House bill, we talked about this, I think, a week ago, but uh, it's patterned after the House bill, but it is not the same as the House bill. So it's a big question of what comes out of that once it goes to, once it goes to conference. Yeah. So, Joe, let's talk about the Georgia election. You know, it. I, I read that uh, the Democratic candidate spent $25 million, which in my mind was staggering, you know, $25 million to lose. And that's that's money that I would never see in my lifetime. And yet somebody spent that much on an election that uh, that didn't even pan out in their favor. Um, but it, do you feel like this, uh, that this special election is, do you feel like it's a barometer for the, the health of the Trump presidency? Well, it's so hard to say. Uh, I will say if the Republicans, the Republicans had more to lose than the Democrats had to gain. I mean, by, so in other words, by the Democrats losing this, it was not as devastating to them right. as it would have been to the Republicans if they had lost the, the seat. Uh, then I believe you could have said that was a, a referendum, uh, because this is a historically, traditionally Republican seat. But it is a seat, as everyone points out, that Hillary Clinton only lost by less than 2%. So yeah. there was some, some thought that, well, uh, you know, a strong, attractive, well-funded candidate could come in. And and by the way, this is by a long, 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 long way, the most expensive congressional race in history on both sides. I mean, the Democrats spent a little bit more than the Republicans, but, but altogether, it looks like it's going to be in excess of $50 million. And when all the reports come in, it may end up being close to $60 million wow. spent on a congressional race. Um, so, yeah, just getting back to the, the, the substance of your question, it says it, it, it was a big sigh of relief on the Republican side that they didn't lose. But on the Democrat side, it sparked a huge uh, conflict within the party over, OK, what is the right approach? We had what looked like a very close district, a district that we might have been able to win. 
you, if you, well, I don't know how closely they followed it, but Ossoff, the guy, the, the Democrats, ran, initially he ran as kind of a resistance candidate, really hammering Trump. Yeah. But then, as I'm guessing, don't know, but I'm guessing he's more polling data. He was doing a lot of polling. I mean, with uh, $20, $30 million, you could take, take a lot of polls. Uh, what then turned out was that, um, well, wait a second, maybe this resistance idea isn't working, so I'm going to move a little bit to the center. So toward the end of the campaign, he ran more as a moderate Democrat. So what that sparked on the, on the Democrat side was this whole soul-searching. Well, some people from the Bernie Sanders part of the party said, see, it doesn't work. You cannot run as a moderate and win. You have to run to the left. Yeah. And and uh, others, Democrats are saying, well, let's not draw too big of a conclusion from that, uh, because yeah, it's a very hackneyed phrase right now. But all politics is local. And, you know, we need to run these uh, the, the uh, next races on a case by case basis, looking at the candidates on both sides and where are the vulnerabilities. But there's a huge there is a strong movement, a very strong movement on within the Democratic Democrat Party to look at, uh, no, we need to go more of the Bernie Sanders route. And then, of course, um, there's the whole issue of Nancy Pelosi. I mean, toward the end, the ads were just mercilessly, relentlessly anti-Pelosi, basically saying, no matter what Ossoff says, when he gets in there, he's going to vote for Nancy Pelosi from San Francisco to be the Speaker of the House. And, and apparently those ads just resonated uh, in the district and um, uh, Handel won, to make the pun, handily, uh, relatively handily. She won by slightly more than Trump won, uh, showing that it's not necessary that the Trump, that it's only the Trump base, that basically the Republicans came home notwithstanding that some of them didn't like Trump very much. Yeah. So, I know it's a very interesting case. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, Nancy Pelosi came out like days after saying, no, I'm in, I'm still running, I'm good for the party. And in fact, she is good for the party. She has raised herself nearly a half a billion dollars for the Democratic Party, primarily uh, Democrat House members, uh, as the Speaker of the House and as Minority Leader. So, you know, it's, uh, she is a very potent force, and she speaks for a very substantial part of the of the party. So you recall, she was not a Bernie Sanders part, but strong Hillary Clinton, but still sort of left of the center of um, of American politics. So yeah, I think a lot of people were surprised, Republicans and Democrats, at how potent the anti Pelosi ads were how effective they were yeah and you know as far as the georgia election is concerned just looking at the numbers it's 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 crazy because depending on what side of this you land on you know you're gonna have a different opinion whether it's man we just can't figure out how to how to beat trump and maybe that's not the right tactic trying to go after him and then if you're a republican you're you might be sweating too because the the amount of support seems to be dwindling there Interesting. Well, it's it's clear that the the predecessor, uh, now Secretary of Health and Human Services Price, won that district by twenty two percent. Yeah. Now, to to be fair, it's not it's not really apples to apples. He was the incumbent. He was a well liked guy. 
and he probably had a very weak opponent uh, because who's going to run against the long-term popular incumbent? But still, it's unarguable that the percentage of victory in each of the four contested uh, open seats was weaker for the Republicans than historically in those in those districts. So, yeah, no, the Democrats have something to talk about there because, recall, they only need, I think, 23 or 24 seats to flip for them to get control of the uh, – for the Democrats to get control of the House. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so there, there's, there's, there's room in there for a lot. But I think the, the biggest genuine takeaway is the debate going on inside the Democrat Party right now as, as okay, how do, we, how do we go? Are we resist Trump? Uh, or do we go more to the left? Or is Trump not the factor we thought he was going to be? You know, there's a, all, there's a lot of, if you read the Twitterverse uh, with, among Democrats, you find a lot of really interesting um, back and forth on what is our agenda, how do we articulate it, how do we get more of a, pro, a positive. I think a, a lot of pretty smart Democrats are saying we just have to be more positive. We have to tell people what we could do for them and articulate our agenda more effectively in a way that resonates with uh, middle class and working folks. Well, Joe, uh, it sounds like we're going to have a lot to talk about next week, especially in terms of all these cases that are being decided on today. So once again, Joe Cannon, thank you so much for your time here on the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, Joe Cannon is the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation. You can look it up at fuelfreedom.org. And uh, we'll speak with him again next week and talk a little bit more about those cases. Big things happening right now in this country. We're going to take a break, and when we return, we'll continue the discussion here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. We just finished speaking with Joe Cannon, our Washington insider, and I'm sure we're going to have a lot to talk about next week. But uh, before we finish off the hour, Terry South has a little something he wants to talk to us about. So uh, this story came out in the last week. Chelsea, Massachusetts, a, uh, authorities in Chelsea, Massachusetts say a big toy may have saved a toddler from serious harm or worse. As the Boston Globe reports, two-year-old Luis Eduardo Gomez was bouncing on his bed Wednesday afternoon when he bounced clear out his second-story window from his bedroom. What? He's just bouncing, bouncing oh my whoop, goodness. right out the window. Luckily, he was still clutching the animal, which is a stuffed, a two-foot-long stuffed cow, <sighs> right? A little stuffed animal. He fell about 16 feet onto the concrete. He could easily have broken bones and been very injured, seriously injured, the police say. But he was able, as he fell, he twisted and fell on the cow. Yeah. Instead of his back. Oh, my right? goodness. So he fell and bounced off this cow, landed on the grass or whatever. No injuries. He was fine. But, uh, yeah, he just fell out the window. So he was shaking up minor cuts and bruises, but otherwise fine. The family moved to the U.S. five months ago from Guatemala. The boy's uncle says uh, he carries the cow with him everywhere. Okay, I'm terrified because we had probably about a two-foot stuffed animal cow. Right. And uh, it had a little tutu. We called it Llewellyn. Um, and we sold it at a garage sale. And now I really wish we hadn't done that. Do what we did. Buy, buy your kid a huge panda. 
You'll be fine. Well, they just don't play with stuffed animals is the thing. So then the $3 that we got for it at the garage sale seems more important. Then there's safety, I guess. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, so the kid falls out. Oh, my goodness. Clutching a cow, lands you know, on the cow, not himself, and survives. So, yay. Man, you can imagine the commercials that they're going to air now from now on. Buy your kid a cow. <laughs> Buy your kid a cow. National Dairy Board. And eat at Chick-fil-A. I don't know how that would save you. If anything, that would <laughs> not save you. Anyway... Hold on to those stuffed animals. You never know when you're going to need them to save your kid's life or to avoid tremendous injury. We're going to take a break. That's it for hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to continue the fun when we come back. Until then. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt, Ta- uh, Matt Townsend Show. This is hour number two. I almost forgot uh, the name of the show there for a second. It's not the Jeff Simpson show yet. Uh, no, not yet. Although at this rate, who knows? I mean, because he's been gone for about a week. Oh, that's he's done that before. But he's got an excuse. He's uh, recuperating from some surgery that he recently had. We won't gross you out with all the gory details, but suffice it to say, he's feeling better and uh, he's hoping to be back tomorrow. So we wish him well, and uh, yeah, we'll probably see him tomorrow. But he missed another important day because today is chocolate pudding day. Uh, something he likely is not able to eat. At this point, he could eat sugar-free. I guess that's true. Could he? But is wouldn't that just is wouldn't it? that just be the the really bad fake sugar that no. gives you cancer? Well, probably. But yeah, eh. it's in everything now. Well, that's so you mostly just in the embrace it. Yeah, the fake sugar is in his diet coke. That which is why he's in this trouble. Hmm. Anyway, he can tell you all about that when he's back. Uh, let me give you a little history about. Chocolate Pudding Day. The history of pudding starts far back in the 17th century when the first recipes for puddings appear. Uh, Back then, puddings were made much different than the classically thought of pudding is today. And to make it clear, we're talking about dessert puddings, not savory puddings. So does that mean like not a figgy, not figgy pudding or rice pudding? Like a meat pie Oh, I, yeah, there's maybe. Like meat, there's like meat puddings and yeah. all kinds of weird things out there. So common ingredients back then were butter and flour, uh, cereals and other ingredients, which when they came together served to create more of a cake-like result yeah. than the puddings we think of today. In the 1700s, did they have Lucky Charms when we're talking cereal? No. I mean, cereal meaning like a grain type uh. product. See, that's interesting that it, you would think it would be the other way around where pudding would be a lot runnier and uh you know not as not with not much substance because you would think that their teeth were not as well cared for back then <laughs> wow. i'm just saying yes yeah. everyone, everyone in the 17th century had a liquid diet actually and that's that's not to say that they were you know they didn't care about their hygiene their dental hygiene i'm just no. saying we have much better sure. You know, Once we had indoor plumbing, we took showers. Yeah, yes. we, know. we know. Well, yeah. And brushed our teeth. Better dentists. Yeah. Better equipment. Sure. Better research. So. 
basically the pudding that was originally pudding if you made it today you you felt like you did the recipe wrong yeah and in my case you'd feel like you're a moron because when you make it's always instant pudding that i make and if you mess that up i mean come on yeah where's the hope for your individual future if you can't get pudding instant pudding that recipe is simple you know, most of the time it's not even like you have to. I over the weekend I bought no bake. Yeah. Pudding, right? You just add milk. Yeah. Steer it up, put it in the fridge. You mess that up, I'm not sure where where the future lies. You know, it's interesting because it seems like all this time has passed and we're still demanding pudding. Because in the Christmas song, mm-hmm. you're saying, "Now bring us some figgy," and like they're saying it three times. Right. Bring us some figgy pudding. And now we have instant pudding, so we're still demanding that we have our pudding and we have it now. I don't think I've ever demanded pudding, though. Maybe some vanilla pudding. I requested pudding before. Yeah. yeah. May I please have some pudding? Should, anyway. Are you, are you, are you <laughs> suggesting a uh, change to the song? Should it be um, more polite? Yeah. Like, now bring us some figgy pudding when it's convenient for you. Or a more culturally relevant pudding, like chocolate or vanilla or pistachio or tapioca. Because the only thing figs show up in now are cookies, and who eats Fig Newtons anymore? They're okay. Yeah, they're all right. All right. Granted, They're at my grandma's house every time I go there. (laughs) I don't don't seek out the figs, but yeah. Yes. What about dates? Oh, yeah. We have date muffins that are actually very good. But yeah, if I had a fig in front of me, I don't even know if I would know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with a date, but that's a different kind of date than we're talking about. Yeah. Maybe throw it at a bird that's in my backyard. Anyway, um, all the fun that you're not going to get anywhere else here on the Matt Townsend Show when we're celebrating Chocolate Pudding Day. Terry, what else is going on around the rest of the country? Now, we talked about some of this with Joe Cannon, but today begins the Supreme Court's final week before its current term ends and summer break begins. SCOTUS is expected to hand down several major decisions in the next few days. Among them, it's ruling on on President Trump's stalled travel ban. A rumors are swirling that this Monday, so today, could see a retirement announcement from Justice Anthony Anthony Kennedy. Sources close to Kennedy say that he has seriously considered retirement. Um, they are unclear if they could occur as early as this term. Kennedy's departure would give President Trump his second SCOTUS nomination after the successful appointment, appointment of Neil Gorsuch to replace the late Antonin Scalia. So lots to, lots to watch for there. Lots to uh, – especially, think... especially just the rulings could come out and they always tend to cause a lot of turmoil as, of course, they're debating the health bill. So I, I wish he wouldn't retire because I don't think we can handle one more thing for – Democrats to just fight yeah. tooth and nail. That's what they're going to do. That's what's <laughs> going to happen. It's just be a big fight. Ford announced plans last week to import its compact Focus model from China after scrapping its proposed earlier uh, proposal earlier this year to expand a plant in Mexico. The planned Mexico facility had been roundly criticized during last year's presidential campaign. A blow to U.S. auto workers, profit margins for sales of compact cars in the U.S. are thin. So it makes little sense for Ford to expand production of Focuses in the U.S., but when such cars are built in Mexico rather than in China, they are typically sourced with American-made auto parts, supporting at least some domestic employment. The vast majority of parts for Chinese-built cars are made in China. Hmm. So it makes more sense economically for Ford to build them in China and ship them over. They're also sold in China and all over the world, so it's not just a, a matter of... You know, it's it's a matter of just the entire 
creation manufacturing of the car is better to do it in China. But they're so American. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? Oh. We'll send them uh, over here, and you can have your Ford Focus if you want it. Uh, Google, which is scan, which was scanning the content of personal emails sent by Gmail users in order to target users with personalized advertisements, has announced it will stop the practice, according to a post on the Search Giant's blog. Google made the decision in an attempt to reassure customers that their communications were confidential. Google will continue to advertise, but the information will be taken from browsing searches and physical location data. Also news, Google has a blog. Oh, they have they have several blogs. That's where they put all their press releases. Nobody looks at them unless you're covering <laughs> the story. But just the idea that they were scanning, scanning your email to advertise to you. Now they're not, right? Yeah. What that means is they have enough data on you that they don't need your, your email anymore to, to send you uh, advertisements. Are not, you a- not that they're being really benevolent and you know yeah. preserving your, your, uh, your privacy in any way. So. Are you ever grateful for the advertisements that pop up? Like when you're searching on dictionary.com or, you know, some other website. No. Never. Uh-uh. There's never anything that pops up that, oh, I might want to buy that. Not really. Oh. I most, just had one this morning. Most of the time it's uh, you go to a website, make a purchase, and then ads will follow you around, you around suggesting you buy what you just purchased. So be careful what you buy. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, I mean, you, you could be on any website and all of a sudden something pops up and it might be embarrassing. Maybe you don't want that just out there so it, you know someone walks behind you and like sees that on the screen and i certainly wouldn't want anybody right? to know if i bought a fidget toy right which i have not let's be clear those didn't pop up it's always like what what, what gets me is i'll look for shoes and then those specific shoes i look for follow me around for weeks yeah and you're yeah. just like okay can we somehow figure out how to knock i mean i i get what they're trying to do but it just seems like it's the wrong way because it, it totally makes me never want to go to that website again yeah Speaking of the, the the fidget toys, I saw a kiosk that was dedicated at the mall to specifically fidget toys. Right. I wonder how much longer that'll be there. We are on the downward slope of fidget toys. Yeah. So uh, not for long. Hmm. I saw a hoverboard over the weekend. <gasps> Some the Authentic? My, uh, the city I live in had a uh, festival thing they do for the weekend, fireworks, a okay. big carnival and stuff, and somebody won. A hoverboard. Now we're just riding around on it, and you're like, I haven't seen one of those in a year. Is this a hoverboard that only operates on some kind of a magnetic surface? No, no, no. No, it's the goofy two-wheeled thing that people were riding around a couple years ago. Yeah, the batteries are blowing up on them. Oh, okay. So they're not really hovering. You're just you know you're on wheels, right? But they call them hoverboards. The Segway without a handle. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But you know, people are still buying those. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. Uh, And finally, a Mars-sized planet appears to be lurking at the edge of the solar system, scientists have announced. The planetary mass object seems to be disrupting the orbits of other smaller rocky bodies within the Kuiper Belt, a disk-shaped region of icy bodies beyond Neptune that encircles the entire solar system and extends around 2.3 billion miles. This planetary mass object is different from the hypothetical Planet 9, which is believed to be a huge object, to be orbiting the sun from the outer solar system so our friend pluto hmm. or pluto yeah may have some neighbors that he's not telling us about cuz you, you know he knows about them maybe it's like a bad roommate or something could be so they're hmm. saying there's a planet 9 well now they're saying there's something outside planet 9 this is crazy isn't there one of isn't there a movie called the uh, plan something from i it's yeah, supposed yeah, yeah. to be one of the worst movies ever made it's an invasion movie yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Interesting. Hmm. So we'll just, have to look into that. 
And they know that something's out there because the the objects they can see are being affected in a way that isn't uh, – basically the, everything is affected by the sun. Yeah. But when you're pulling away from the sun, that means there's something else out there that's re, that's acting upon you to pull you towards it. So there's something bigger out there. Ooh. So I'm not sure what it is. We'll, we'll put our MT News team on that and see what they come up with. Um, I mean it, – it it won't be anything other than the truth, right? Of course. It's always yeah. the truth. Might be a little late. Not <laughs> totally accurate, but it's close. Yeah, yeah, truth is kind of a, you know, fluid it, word. It's relative. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, um when was the last time that you guys have shoplifted? Hmm. <laughs> Did I ever No, there I brought like my friend's toy to a store. Mhm. And I forgot that I had his toy in my back pocket. Yeah. I left the toy. My mom saw me playing with it. So instead of saying that I took the toy from my friend's house, I told her that I took it from the store. Interesting. I was really a small kid. Couldn't quite like <laughs> register, you know, which is the, yeah. the higher level of issue when it comes to, you know, stealing from a store yeah. versus your friend. And, and, and so we left it. And as we were leaving the store, I cry because my friend's toy is now on the shelf. <laughs> so we had to go back and get it off the shelf. Oh, my goodness. And then my so the mom, shop shop lifted from you. Yeah. So it just Whoa. turned into this big, complicated thing. My mom took us over to the manager to just explain what we were doing. This isn't yours. This is, you know, and the guy's looking at her like, whatever. And so I end up having to, she marches me over to my friend's house and I give him his toy back. So you had to confess to two different yeah, groups of people. I, I just made it worse by lying. Yeah. Don't do, don't lie. Just oh, tell her what it was. It would have been fine. No big I deal. I once tried to buy a bunch of bananas for my mom. She sent me in with like exact change almost. And it was, it was at this point where, the cashiers were not getting as much change as they used to. Like yeah. credit cards were becoming a thing. Yeah. And they were more widely used. And so the person I gave the change to was very confused. And then it was I was only there buying bananas. And she fiddled around with it and then gave me back the exact change that I had given her. But <laughs> I thought I had given her change. And so I was like halfway out the store when I realized right. that I was walking out with the same amount of money that I walked in with. And the bananas. And the bananas. So I walked back in and gave them back the you know, buck 40 or whatever that this bunch of bananas cost. So, so in a long way, uh, no. No, okay. <laughs> so when you said that, Cole, I thought you said that you were buying bananas from your mom. And I thought, what kind of a mom is not going to give her son a banana when he want, when he's hungry? The allowance was stretched thin. Life Especially you, you know, you're, you're skin and bones, so I, you need those bananas. Anyway, you know, I, yeah, I've walked out of a store before uh, with something in my hand, not realizing that I hadn't paid for it, and then, you know, promptly went right back in and, and paid for it. But, uh, you know, and then you also hear stories about actors that will – they'll pretend to be homeless or they'll they'll go and live as a homeless person for a couple of nights. Just to experience the – yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they're researching a role, right? Well, a Wyoming college student who told officers she was working on a term paper hmm. on kleptomania hmm. after she was caught – oh, she told them that the, uh, she was working on a term paper on kleptomania after she was caught shoplifting. And she faces three felony charges. 23-year-old Lydia, Lydia Marie Cormani was arrested on June 5th after trying to leave Walmart with nearly $1,900 worth of merchandise. Court records say investigators later found thousands of dollars worth of stolen items in her dorm room. Cormani told officers she began shoplifting after being forced to move into a dorm room 
uh, away from her roommate who had many of the household items. She said she was caught once when she tried to leave Walmart with three flat screen TVs. So she moved out or away from the roommate who had all the stuff. Yeah. The TV, the, yeah, you know, whatever she needed. Her roommate had everything that she was borrowing. Yeah. Indefinitely. And then her roommate leaves and then the only solution is to just go and steal all the stuff she needs. So she could have easily left the roommate out of this and just said, well, I didn't have the money to pay for the things that I wanted, so I just Which stole Which is them. the real answer, yes. right? <laughs> yes. And those nothing things, to do with the roommate. Those things weren't, you know, plates and forks that yeah. my roommates have that I use. It's three flat screens TVs. Yeah. Oh, so your roommate took her three flat screen TVs with her when she moved out. I That's see why bad. you need them now, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not, not going to work. Not effective. Oh, yeah. But uh, it is frustrating when the person you're living with that has all the cool things moves out. Like I live somewhere where my roommate uh, moved out and took his Nintendo Wii with him back in 2007 or 2008 when Nintendo Wiis were still kind of a big thing. And he also took the uh, Batman animated series with him. Oh, see, now that's reason for sorrow. But I didn't go out and steal it. No, no, Good for I you, just Jeff. downloaded it for free offline. Uh, anyway, that's not true at all. Don't go stealing, even if you're researching for a paper on kleptomania. Don't do it. Don't do it. You're better than that. Anyway, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about a very interesting topic. A lot of people out there, you know, the numbers are staggering these days of divorce and As a result of that, you have these families that are coming together that aren't traditional families, and uh, it it can be difficult for step-parents. And our next guest is going to be talking to us about navigating the tricky waters of being a stepdad when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away. You know, the American family has gone through some recent changes. In the past, a nuclear family of two biological parents and their children was considered the most common family unit. Recently, divorce rates and the increasing numbers of single-parent homes have opened up more opportunities for the formation of step-families. This type of family unit usually includes one biological parent, one non-biological parent, and in some cases includes the children of one or both parents. And here to speak with us more on uh, navigating the tricky waters of being a stepdad is Joshua Gold. Dr. Gold is a professor of educational studies at uh, the University of South Carolina. His research interests include spirituality and counseling, family counseling, especially with step families, and common factors research. Joshua, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, I saw the numbers on this, and I was hoping that you could start off by sharing some of the numbers with us on you know what it was like you know, 50 years ago versus what it is today. So let's start with the numbers. Okay. Number-wise, we knew that most people got married. Most marriages lasted until death. Divorce was much harder to get. These days, and again, it depends whom you ask, divorce rates on first marriages 
approximate about 50%. Out of those divorcing folks, about 90% of them remarry within three years. Wow. Yeah. So one of the comments that was made by one of the authors I read in preparation for my book was that Americans don't seem to think maybe it's not marriage. They seem to think maybe it's not the right partner. Mm-hmm. We also know in most divorce cases, the children end up residing at least part-time, usually full-time, with the biological mother. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, there is still, unfortunately, I think, a perception that mothers are better parents in terms of nurturing and caretaking and childbearing than our fathers. Well, that's that, a whole other topic. Yeah, it cer- certainly seems to be the case when, you know, these types of cases go to go to uh, get put in front of a judge. And it seems like usually they side with the mother. But, yeah, that, that is kind of a different topic. Right. So what we end up with is as folks remarry and have children, about 85 percent of reconstituted families end up being the biological mom, her kids, and a new father figure. Wow. He may he may or may not have children from his previous marriage. Okay, so and I think I read in in your article that you yourself are a stepfather, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So, um obviously I, you know, and I've got a brother who is a stepfather, so he's got three kids of his own, and he married a woman that has four kids of her own. And so there are obviously a lot of challenges, and mm-hmm. for a stepfather, and that's 85% of this of these uh, the scenario that you're talking about, right? 85% of stepfamilies right. consist of the mother, the biological children, and a stepfather. So that's, it seems like a very difficult task to be able to enter into this new family and to be able to win over the children and and to be able to be respected and loved. And I would assume, and according to your article, too, that you might have some misconceptions about going into that family situation. And what are some of those misconceptions? Well, we talked about a couple. One is that you're never, ever, as long as there is an absent father someplace— going to be seen as daddy. Now, that case changes. I did another radio show where a caller um, shared with me that he had moved into a step-parent role very early and then ended up adopting his stepkids, and that was a different scenario. Yeah. Uh, So... I'm curious to know because, and obviously there are different scenarios, you know, whether the kids might have a good relationship with their biological father, they might have a poor relationship with their biological father. Uh, in either scenario, it's it's going it to may seem difficult for the stepfather to to earn the acceptance of the children in this new family. How how can a stepfather go about doing that? Well, I think the very first thing would be to abandon just about everything you think about being a father. That role has already been filled. And no matter what it is you decide that you want to do, is not going to be able to compensate for what the biological father could provide. And is that true regardless of of whether the father is a a good role model versus a, a poor role model? 
unfortunately, poor and good role models for the kinds of comments that adults make about each other, hmm. not children about their own parents. Yeah. Okay. So one of the other things one can do very, if it's possible, would be to sit down with the biological mom and talk about what it is she's hoping that he can provide within this new family unit. And then what do you think about, does that uh, connect to one of his personal strengths and to what his you know, notion is about being a stepfather? The big challenge about doing this is that in most families, first marriages, folks have got years of being spouses together before they decide to become parents. In step families, that time frame doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. So you automatically become a new spouse and a stepdad all at the same time. So it seems like it'd be a, a kind of a fine line to try to tread because you want the you want the stepkids to either love you or respect you or I guess at the very least tolerate you. Um, right. But you also seems like you would want to make sure that they're not stepping all over you and taking advantage of you. Uh, how do you how do you kind of balance that line, or how do you find a balance? Well, I think it begins with a conversation with the biological mom, and then a presentation by her to her children in your presence of this is who this person is, and this is these are the family rules about how we interact with adults. And obviously, uh, that's going to take some time. Yes. Well, there are developmental models of step family evolution that suggest that one should allot at least about seven years for the whole thing to come together. Wow. Yes. Okay. So that doesn't mean it's going to. Yeah. But just not to get impatient or to become self-critical if after three months it doesn't exist. So is this... I mean, we're, we're talking about misconceptions and don't go into this relationship having these misconceptions. And the first one we, you just talked about is it's not you're not replacing their biological father. Um, could you adopt that mindset then? That I, is, it, is it safe to say going in and, not, and having that mindset of it's going to take seven years? Or mm-hmm. is that a dangerous mindset to adopt? Does that set, your, set yourself up for failure? I would suggest let's split the difference and go, it may take as long as. Okay, yeah. Because it, I don't think anything is going to be a straight progression. There are going to be good times. There are going to be times when you question your decisions, etc. Yeah. Okay, so so that's one of the misconceptions. I noticed here mm-hmm. that, uh, as another one you put, a stepfather needs to establish authority and discipline the children if necessary. Right. So what is the stepfather's role as far as discipline is concerned? His role after discussion with the mom is to enforce the family rules. Yeah. You cannot have rules that are different than the biological moms because these kids have no prior relationship with him. They don't know him. There's no sense of trust. There's no sense of anything apart from mom picked him. Yeah. And so this... There have to be... I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was just going to say there have to be rules of conduct and expectations that are negotiated between the adults and then presented and enforced equally for all the children. Yeah. 
Dr. Gold, this is another thing that I I would see would be really tricky. I'm just thinking of my own uh, my own family. You know, my kids are starting to figure out what buttons they need to press press in order to get what they want. So if if they get a no answer for me, maybe they go to their mom. And she gives them a yes answer, and it may be something that's kind of trivial, but we haven't discussed, and so they know how to do that. It seems like for a stepdad, there would be this pressure to to want this approval, and maybe it's something that the, the two have not discussed, and so maybe they go to mom and they get uh, a no answer, but they know that the stepdad wants their approval, and so they go to him, and he thinks, well, maybe I say yes. You know, It seems like yeah. that would be another difficult thing to, to try to work out. Well, I, I wholly agree in what you're talking about are instances where the spouses haven't talked about it first. And the kids know that they can divide and conquer. Yeah. You know, the, the very first thing, you know, if stepdad turns around and goes, gee, that's a really interesting question. I don't think your mom and I have talked about it. Why don't you and your mom and I sit down in just a moment and get an answer? Yeah. Now, this child already knows that they've asked mom. Mom has said no. And if the three of them sit down, that there's going to be a fair amount of disappointment that the child has attempted this. Yeah. Now, what about in the scenario where the biological mother is away, she's on vacation or away for the weekend or something like that, and and the bi- uh, the stepfather is in charge solely, and what what's the best way for the stepfather to take responsibility in that scenario? Well, I think the responsibility is imposed before the mom leaves. Everybody sits down, whatever the day is, and says, this is what's going to happen, and this is kind of the chain of command. The other thing, too, these days is nobody is really away. Yeah, that's true. I don't know anybody who doesn't have a cell phone or who doesn't check texts or anything else. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it is naive to kind of go, you know, leave that all behind you and I won't contact you. Yeah, exactly. And again, it's 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 tricky because, you know, depending on what kind of kids you have, they they might try to manipulate things and I'm not trying to be negative with this, but it just I I guess what I'm trying to get at is it seems like the role and the the job of a stepfather is just a, a very difficult one. Um and you know, if you're if you're going to enter into that situation, you shouldn't do so lightly. And hopefully, I don't know if you have any numbers on that, but uh, it seems like that that is another problem that happens where, you know, somebody enters a marriage and they're not really going into this marriage considering some of these things that, that you're talking about. Um, Dr. Gold, let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about some other misconceptions that stepfathers might have and, and then also maybe some other pointers that you can give uh, to make it so that uh, these stepfathers can have a more successful marriage and and uh, relationship with their stepchildren. So we'll do that. We'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue, continue the discussion with uh, Dr. Joshua Gold here on The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Dr. Joshua Gold, who is talking to us about navigating the tricky waters of being a stepdad. And uh, he actually also has a book out that is entitled uh, Stepping In, Stepping Out, Creating Step Family Rhythm. Sounds really interesting. Dr. Gold, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much. So uh, before the break, you mentioned several misconceptions that stepfathers have going into these uh, these new families, uh, one being that a stepfather is just like being a biological father, uh, and the other one being a stepfather needs to establish authority and discipline the children if necessary, and uh, you helped us to sort of not, uh, you know— eliminate that mind of thinking, but to just kind of refocus it, you know, as far as the discipline, talk to the mom, the mom, the mom should be establishing things in the presence of the stepfather. And then as far as the uh, stepfather being just like the biological father, which is just not true, you know, you, you can obviously be a figure to those children, but they are always going to have their biological father. And, uh, I'm curious to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, would it be, would you recommend the stepfather having some sort of a communication with the biological father to establish what their roles are? Do you think that's a fight waiting to happen, or do you think there's any value in that? There is a whole bunch of concerns I would have in advocating that notion. One is the degree to which the ex have reconciled and come to peace with the death of the marriage yeah. and yet made a commitment to be positive co-parents. If there's a lot of rancor left over from the divorce, whatever, however that came down, then this would just be another issue. Yeah. I, I don't think that it needs to be as coordinated as it sounds. My question to any new stepdad or any father generally is in what can you interest the children which is special to you. Do you garden? Do you play the piano? Do you like to cook? Do you like to go for hikes? Do you like photography? Can you paint? You know, can you play a flute? And the more things that they can do, whether or not the dad does it or not, the kids will begin to show an interest. Yeah, so kind of just going along with what you mentioned earlier about playing to your strengths. That's interesting. Um, and we've got this third misconception here. Stepfathers need to compensate for the absent biological father. Now, why is that a misconception? You can't rebuild an ex-relationship. You can rebuild, you can build a better one moving forward. So, you know, if, if the biological dad, for whatever reason, was never, he was never there to take kids to soccer practices or music recitals or what have you, no matter how often you do that, isn't going to compensate. It just gives a different picture of fathering from this point forward. Yeah. You can't go back and relive the past. You can just learn from it and kind of make better choices moving forward. Yeah. So here's another question. You know, obviously this is in a scenario where 85% of these uh, of these new families are coming from consist of the mother, the biological children, her biological children, and a stepfather. Now, uh-huh. do you feel like your advice would be the same for that other 15% where it's the stepmother and the biological father and his kids? No. Interesting. 
Wow, <laughs> okay. Emphatically, no. Um, <laughs> I think, by and large, stepmothers, and I mean, if you look at fairy tales in the worldwide, stepmothering always has an adjective in front of it, and that's evil. That's right, like Cinderella. Right. Yeah. And that's one of those dominant social myths. I also think that, and the literature will support this, I think stepmothers take much more responsibility for family harmony and family peace and family cohesiveness than stepfathers do. Interesting. And they cannot either. Now, why is that, do you think? I think, by and large, if we look at socialization patterns in our society, women are more often put in charge of relational dynamics. I mean, I'm not sure among the people you know um, who arranges the birthday parties and the anniversary parties and the kids' trips out. Yeah, that's a good point. Is it the dads or is it the moms? Yeah. Well, I I do some of that stuff. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, but that that is a good point. Um, I have... And I also think that it's, it may be, and again, I, you know, the notion about having another man raise your, your children is one thing. The point about having another woman raise your children and you having lost those children for some reason is much different. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So... Wow, an emphatic no on <laughs> whether this would be yeah. the same advice for for stepmothers as for stepfathers. So clearly, you know, it's you shouldn't go into this relationship lightly, and uh, it's it's good that it looks like we can people can check out your book, "Stepping In, mm-hmm. Stepping Out: Creating Step Family Rhythm," to kind of debunk some of these myths that they have or these mindsets that that they have going in. I, I want to focus a little bit in closing here on what kind of advice or what comfort can you give to stepfathers who are either entering this situation or who are already in it and are struggling? And, you know, even yeah. though they're trying their best, they're just, they seem to be struggling. My suggestion would be to reach out to your wife. And if that doesn't work, reach out to professionals in your community who understand how step families work and how they need to progress because it is specialized knowledge. And there's a difference between going for counseling or therapy and going for educational kinds of sessions so that you realize that most of what you're going through is not an indication of a personal deficiency or um, a deterioration of your new family, but just the growing pains of a family trying to come together. And once that becomes normalized rather than pathologized, it makes it easier to approach. My, my statement would be to find other step families in your community, and they are not easy to find, um, you know, and kind of talk through with each other what it's like. So again, you realize it's not personally you, it's a function of where you are you know, within the system. Excellent. Well, Dr. Gold, thank you so much for all of your tips and advice here today and uh, shedding some more light on this, on this important topic. The book is Stepping In, Stepping Out, Creating Step Family Rhythm, 
And uh, his name is Dr. Joshua Gold, who is a professor of educational studies at the University of South Carolina. His research interests include spirituality and counseling, family counseling, family counseling, especially with step families and common factors research. Dr. Gold, thank you once again for being on the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to do a little bit of empty news for you here, uh, including, uh, uh, you know, one of the best trips to McDonald's that you could ever have. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. It's that time on the Matt Townsend Show when we do a little bit of empty news. Not empty substance-wise, but MT standing for Matt Townsend News. And, uh, you know, Matt is going to wish that he heard this one, although probably not because this is not an establishment that he would frequent or hasn't free- or hasn't uh, recently anyway. Cole, have you ever been somewhere and, uh, like a restaurant or a fast food place where... You were the beneficiary of some act of kindness, whether it was your waitress, you know, giving you something for free or, you know, somebody, you know, gives you their table or something like that. Anything like that ever happened to you? Not of that nature. No, I I guess I'm probably not handsome enough to have the waitress like go out of her way and <laughs> do something like that, maybe. Okay. Or maybe she thinks, oh, this guy's in college. He's not going to give me a good tip. That's more so what I happens. See. I mean, you get together with a bunch of friends going to Applebee's, and it's yeah. not exactly they – don't, they don't expect the best tip that they've yeah. ever gotten. And we talked about this last week on the show. If a surefire way to never see your waiter or waitress again is to not order any alcohol, order an all-you-can-eat item, mm-hmm. and don't get dessert. You'll never see them again. Oh, yeah. Never. You probably won't even get your water refilled. Yeah. Well, this these people are lucky because I think the, the best thing that's ever happened to me at McDonald's is their french fries. They are delicious. And I didn't get sick after. That's always a successful that trip a, to McDonald's. <laughs> that should be the gauge by which we measure all of our, ex, our eating out excursions. Didn't get sick. I loved it. It was almost like the... The Muppet critics. Anyway, a customer's act of kindness at a southern Indiana McDonald's sparked a chain reaction of niceness in its drive through line. Hunter Hostetler, he's a cashier at McDonald's in Scottsburg, about 50 miles north of Louisville, Kentucky. He says an older woman waiting in the restaurant's drive through decided to pay for the big order of a man with four children in a van behind her. Aww. That's so awesome. And, you know, you hear about stuff like this happening every once in a while. A little pay it forward. But usually, I think the last time I heard about this, it was at one of those drive through soda places. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can handle $2 worth of a soda. I don't know how much they've cost because I've never been there. Hostetler says she asked him to tell the man, happy Father's Day, then drove away. The kind gesture prompted the man to pay for two cars behind him, and that generously uh, that generosity eventually spread to 167 cars by wow. closing time. Abby Smith was in one of those cars, and she says it's wonderful knowing that there's still a lot of great people out there. That is amazing. 
It I, is. And those things don't normally work at McDonald's where you can have varying orders. Like I go to McDonald's, I get a 59 cent ice cream cone. The person behind me is getting, you know, happy meals for 10 different kids. There's a discrepancy in the paying sure. of it. Generally, when you go to a soda shop or Starbucks or something like that, everyone's getting about the same amount of thing. I can, my yeah. three bucks goes to my thing or the person behind me doesn't matter. Yeah, McDonald's, at a McDonald's really cool. you'd never know. You'd yeah. never know what the person behind you is ordering. <laughs> Wow, that's so awesome, though. Oh, maybe I ought to do something like that. I usually don't have enough money for my own order, though. Anyway, that's why you're at McDonald's. Yeah, exactly. The dollar value menu. I don't go to McDonald's unless I have my coupons handy. Mm-hmm. The little app. Yeah. Get something for free. Yeah. That's probably a good indicator that you shouldn't be paying full price for that food, though. Anyway, not to say anything bad about McDonald's because magic is happening there, apparently, as we've just read. Here's an interesting one. This one, a little crazy. A man left – oh, you don't want to hear – I got to give you the the tagline or the title for this. A man named Trigger accidentally shoots himself in the ankle at a Dollar General. So a man left a store with a gunshot wound Sunday after he accidentally shot himself uh, using his own firearm. And his name is Jason Trigger. He's from Port Ritchie. He entered a, the discount dollar or dollar general store at about 3.30 p.m. to pick up boxes for a friend. Tucked against his right hip was a 25 caliber handgun or .25 caliber handgun. I don't know anything about guns. Is it point twenty five or twenty five caliber? Twenty five caliber sounds fine to me. But there's just a decimal before, so it's that, all right. Anyway, there's a handgun, and uh, as Trigger walked into the building, the handgun came loose. When it hit the floor, it fired around into his right ankle, according to a Pasco County Sheriff's Office. And Trigger left the firearm on the floor and limped toward a Buick in the parking lot. He later went to the hospital and was contacted by the sheriff's office. Hmm. So maybe he wasn't supposed to be uh, holding on to that gun or wasn't supposed to have it on his person? Maybe he just wasn't supposed to discharge it in a Dollar General. Maybe. <laughs> wow. That's that's ironic. That's what read it the, is. Read the headline one more time, though. This, man, it's all right there on the tin. It's beautiful. Man named Trigger accidentally shoots himself in the ankle at a Dollar General. Mm. See, that's journalism at its finest. That's <laughs> how you know that you've written a beautiful story. Yeah. We could have read that one sentence and not anything else, and we would have known exactly what happened. Okay. Well, that was just a little bit of empty news for you. What we're going to do here is we're going to take a break. That's it for hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. When we come back, we'll get a little bit more into the Matt Townsend news, uh, as well as uh, we'll be playing an interview uh, that's actually a replay that Matt Townsend himself conducted about men and grief and whether or not men should bottle up their emotions, bottle up their grief, whether or not that's healthy. So, you'll be glad to know that Matt Townsend is conducting that interview because he's a certified doctor, although Terry is always asking him a doctor of what. But uh, let's just say he has more education than I do. (laughs) We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll get to that here on the Matt Townsend Show.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to Matt Townsend Show. This is hour number three. We are once again Dr. Mattless, but don't despair. He'll be back soon. He's recuperating, and we're... Uh, we're holding down the fort here. It's we got a nice comfy chair waiting for him when he gets back. And uh, we wish him well and a speedy recovery. I'm Jeff Simpson. I'm filling in for Dr. Matt, as well as uh, Terry South, our wonderful producer, and Cole Wissinger, our, goal, our go-to board operator slash uh, friendly movie guy. You're struggling to come up with nice things to say about me, Jeffrey. No, no, come on. How many other students are going to wake up at 6 in the morning and be here for the Matt Townsend Show? Well, I show? barely wake up at 6 in the morning, but I do come here and I do enjoy the Matt Townsend Show. And who else is going to do a 12-hour shift on a Friday, nonetheless, just to give BYU Sports Nation, BYU Sports Nation some good pro- programming? Cole Wissinger, that's who. Media Day was fun. If you missed any of the Media Day stuff and you're a BYU football fan, um, there's all kinds of podcasts and things you can listen to and get caught up and get your summer fix for BYU football stuff. So, um, there is that nice enough, Cole? Thank you, Jeff. Here's one other nice thing. Cole Wissinger loves his chocolate pudding. That's very nice and very true. <laughs> all right. We are celebrating Chocolate Pudding Day today, so... Uh, Go out and get a snack pack or a Jello pudding pop, and uh, yeah, they're really, really good. I guess you know how I like my I, chocolate pudding. I'm not a huge fan of them. My mom makes chocolate pie with like an Oreo cookie <gasps> crust. Okay, right? now so that's it's good. Chocolate on chocolate on chocolate. Yes, um, and the filling is a pudding-ish kind of substance, so it's like a soft pie mm-hmm. on a chocolate crust, and she puts chocolate like. F- whiz or whatever on the top of it like yeah. chocolate fluff stuff yeah uh, mousse or whatever you want to say there you go so i will say this about pudding uh-huh. speaking of pies i went to a pie party for pie day and everybody brought these amazing pies that they had you know spent hours on i don't know how long they spent on it but they were really good quality pies right i put together a graham cracker crust Threw on some vanilla pudding, and I melted. I blended up some strawberries and had like a strawberry topping to it. More people ate that pie than any of the other pies. Yeah, that's how good pudding is. It's comfortable. Sometimes I see these exotic <laughs> pies, and that's not what I want from a pie. When I, I don't want like... a pie, I just want something that I know that I can love yeah. and enjoy, and that's simple. I don't want to work too much when I'm chewing. Anyway, Terry South, what's going on around the rest of the country that's not related to pudding? Supreme Court has agreed to hear Trump's the Trump administration's challenge to rulings blocking its executive order restricting travel from six Muslim-majority countries, also known as the travel ban. The top U.S. court will allow enforcement of parts of the travel ban while the case moves forward. Justices will hear arguments on the case in the fall. The court also ruled this morning that a Missouri church can use public funds to build a playground. The ruling potentially could narrow the separation of church and state. Right. We talked about Joe Cannon with that. So interesting. Those are coming out. More to come out as the week 
continues along with uh, possibly someone might be thinking of retiring is the rumor mm. that's out there. Hobbled by a deadly airbag scandal, Japanese auto supplier Takata filed for bankruptcy protection late Sunday as it continues to navigate the largest recall in U.S. history to fix a, def- a defect blamed for at least 16 deaths worldwide. Crushed by more than $1 billion in penalties and costs associated with the scandal, the world's second largest airbag manufacturer has widely expected to enter or uh, was widely expected to enter bankruptcy in a bid to slash its debts and sell its assets to a rival supplier. The company's airbags are used on vehicles for nearly all of the world's major automakers, affecting about one quarter of all vehicles on the road in the U.S. as of two years ago, according wow. to an estimate. The recall of more than 42 million vehicles, which is expected to last through the end of the decade, will continue unabated. Automakers remain responsible for repairing the vehicles. We just got my wife's car fixed. This is huge. This is, oh my goodness. Took my wife's car into the dealer. They fixed the airbag. I asked her, does it drive any better? She said no. Oh. I figured it was something like, you know, you get a car wash. And my dad always swore he washed the car and that the car drove better. It was clean. It was a nice car. I'm like, okay, what if you fix the airbag? No, it doesn't fix the car at all. That's all I care about when they take it to get fixed. Did you wash the car after you fixed they it? They did wash and vacuum yeah. the car. So my wife got, my go. wife was kind of worrying about getting that done. I go, just wait. Hold on. And they fixed They did it for her. So, you know, <laughs> good job. Uh, 11 days after saying, laying his son to rest, Frank Kerrigan got a call from a friend, the AP reports. Your son is alive. What? According to the Orange County Register, Orange County coroner's officials in California had misidentified the body. The mix-up began on May 6th when the man was found dead behind a Verizon store. Kerrigan, 82, said he called the coroner's office and was told the body of uh, that was of, of his 57-year-old son, also named Frank Kerrigan, who was mentally ill and had been living on the street. When he asked whether he should identify the body, a woman said apparently incorrectly that the identification had been made through fingerprints. When somebody tells me my son is dead when they have fingerprints, I believe them, Kerrigan said. On May 12th, the family held a $20,000 funeral that drew about 50 people. The body was buried 150 feet from where Kerrigan's wife is buried. Someone else had a beautiful send-off, one family member said. It's horrific. Then came the May 23rd phone call from a friend who says that Kerrigan was standing on his patio. It's unclear how the coroner's officials misidentified the body. An attorney for the family said the coroner's office apparently used an old driver's license photo when identifying the body as the younger Frank Kerrigan. The family plans to sue. Great example of the worst news in your life immediately followed by the best news of your life. Yeah. That's awesome. So he's dead. No, he's on my patio. Oh. Yeah. Well, who's in, who did we bury? Oh, oh well. I figured out. <laughs> And finally, a passenger says an Air Asia plane was shaking like a washing machine when it experienced a problem with its engine and was forced to turn back mid-flight to Perth, Australia. The Air Asia flight took off early Sunday morning, bound for Kuala Lumpur, but experienced a technical issue one and a half hours into the trip. The flight landed back in Perth a few hours later with emergency services on site. As a precaution, police said the marine emergency services were put on standby to prepare for a possible water landing. Passenger Brenton Atkinson, 24, said the whole plane started shaking far more than standard turbulence. It was literally like you were sitting on top of a washing machine. The whole thing was just going round and round we couldn't see the we could see the engine out the window which was really shaking on the wing once we landed we realized one of the blades had actually come off the turbine so the fan that spins in the engine yes one of the pieces flew out and so the engine was not functioning correctly and it was you know almost 
not falling off the wing, but doing enough uh, damage to the wing that the whole plane was shaking, as they said, like a washing machine. A spokesperson for the airline would not confirm the plane's engine was affected, responding only that it was a technical issue. See, that's what you get when you put washing machine parts in an airplane. Just starts shaking like a washing machine. Another another report from the same flight. Uh, they said technical issue. The engine seized up. I think that's what they told us. Anyways, it was literally like you were sitting. The whole washing machine quotes. Um, it says after a bang was heard from the plane's left wing area, the pilot said, "I hope you all say a prayer. I'll be saying a prayer too. Let's hope we can all get back home safely." Whoa! <laughs> so it's one thing that all this is going on, and everyone seems. The, the other reports that everyone acted professionally. No one was panicking. You could see some people were kind of on edge, but no big deal. But the the pilot is saying, "Can everyone please pray for us? Let's basically, hopefully we can make this back." Basically, saying everybody start repenting now. <laughs> <laughs> so as other passengers say that after the plane landed safely with nobody injured, they were told that a blade had sheared off the left engine. Passengers say there was an applause after the landing and the pilot shook hands with everyone on board. Wow. You know, so, yeah. I have a feeling if Palakiko were on that flight, he would have just slept through it Yeah, he like, just, he's, like he's doing right now. That's what he does. He just passes out. He's, <laughs> it's, it's really the best way to get through any any dangerous situation. Just fall asleep. The good news is that yeah. it wasn't United. Oh, they cannot afford that right now. That's good. It wasn't United yeah. this time. Good job, United. It wasn't that you. Should, that'd be a great slogan for any other airline. Hey, we're not United. We're not them. At least we're not United. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm starting I'm, to pay more and more attention to these airplane stories because I'll be flying back home at right. the end of July. There's excitement every day on the airlines, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Well, just... Uh, Pop a squat on your washing machine, and you'll get an idea of what yeah. what it might be like. Okay, I'll get you. If I can sleep on a washing machine, I can sleep on a plane. Then there you go. Uh, anyway, Terry, what else is going on that we should be uh, that we should worry about as or we, be interested in? As we work through the day, uh, I don't I don't know about you. What I, I tend to make a list of things I need to accomplish before I go. Yes. Right. So you have like a to do list. Do you yeah. use to do lists with what you, with the work you do? I do. Is it a um, mental list, or do you write something down? Do you use an app? What do you? It depends on the volume. If I have like way too much to do, I'm writing it down. Okay. Yeah. And then just go with a checklist and kind of just mm-hmm. plow your way through. And I never get through the entire list. Well, this guy is a consultant named John Zertaski. He has crossed off using to-do lists. He uses might-do lists. Okay. <laughs> might-do list. He says, I realize I'm not a machine, I'm not a robot, I'm a human, and I can't and shouldn't optimize and cram as much as I can into every hour. Huh. He goes, there, there tends to be this idea, like you have a to-do list and it's to keep you productive, so when you come up, oh, there's an extra five minutes here, what can I do to make that as productive as possible? Sure. And his approach is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> because if you cram too much in there, you just, you, you're, you're building more stress. You know, if I'm honest with myself... If I were to take a second look at my to-do list, which I usually don't, which shows you that it's not really a to-do list, right. uh, it's really a might-do list because yeah. none of it gets accomplished. Some of this is just being honest with yourself, right? My, yeah. I, uh, my wife will make a list of things she wants to accomplish, and then she gets through half of it, and then she feels bad. I look at her and go, why can't you be realistic and realize you're only going – every time you get through half the list. So do your whole the whole list, put the important things at the top, cut it in half, and do that. In baseball, that would be an incredible batting average, 500. Yeah. It's amazing. Right. Wow. So, so he goes, uh, 
let's see, he goes, one of the reasons I think it's such a powerful way to work is that it's much more obvious when you're done. I took a step towards something bigger that I was working on rather than just kind of scratching around the edges on whatever little tasks I could fit in during the day. He says, I'm, uh, and then again, the, not, not, he's not a machine. He's not a robot. He's going to get this done. He says the technique helps him with projects outside the office. He goes, he reorganizes his apartment, refurbished his sailboats on the weekend, that kind of thing. But it's just a matter of both optimizing the time you have, but not overscheduling to the point that you're getting all these miscellaneous things done that don't really add up to the bigger project at the end. Sure. And you call it what it is. It's a, if, it's a might do if list. If you might do it, you might do it. If you probably will do half of it, call it your probably will do half of it list. And He's, then you feel better <laughs> when you accomplish it. He says when he plans his mornings, he narrows down his might do might do's to what he calls the one big thing. So he does it to he has like a might do list and then narrows it down to the one thing he wants to accomplish during the day. Okay. What's the big thing? And organizes his calendar around that big thing. He said it gives him a really cl- uh, a really close finish line for completing the projects that bring personal value and satisfaction. One of the reasons I think it's such a powerful way to work is it's a much more obvious when you're done. You know what I'm going to do from now on to make myself feel good about myself? I on my to-do list, I'm just going to put wake up, shower, go to work, eat breakfast. I'm going to feel amazing. It's it's not, it's, not a, it's not a bare minimum list. I will have accomplished so many things by the end of the day. I'm going to feel great. So he gives us some tips on how okay. to do this. Yeah. And he says, continue using your calendar to schedule the basic things you have to do each day. Meetings, appointments, emails, those sort of things. Start running a list of bigger things that you might do and review it each night. Okay. Right? So you have your things you have to do. Yeah. Then, you, then there's the next step of what are some things that you might do, you know, just things out there, projects and things. And you can kind of narrow, oh, I could do that one tomorrow. I can work on that one on Wednesday. It goes, from the might do list, select one big thing you'd like to accomplish each day and make that your focus for the day. Okay. And that way you work through a goal every single day. So do you see value in this? Do I you? Do. Is it important for you to have a visual reminder of how productive your day was? Oh, at times. Yeah. At times when when I have a large chunk of time that I don't have a bunch of must-dos. You know sure. what I mean? There's th- every day you have a list of things you, you have to accomplish. If you have a, some open time, if you do this, then you can kind of use that time effectively without, I guess, the stress of trying to overschedule and oh, on behind schedule. I have to move forward with this. And then, you know, you have that negative feeling if you don't finish your list. Yeah. You know, I think my wife uh, thought for a brief moment that I was maybe turning a corner the other day when I had some free time, which doesn't happen a lot, but I had some free time. And uh, I went into her and I said, you know, I kind of wanted to just sit down and and watch TV because the kids were off playing with their cousins. So there was nothing I had to be doing right then and there. But then I said, is there something else I should be doing? So then she gave me this chore, and I think she was happy that I had said this to her. Um, but she actually ended up doing the chore for me. <laughs> so uh, corner not turned. Yeah. Like, but sat- I had put that on my maybe list. So See, Saturday I had a full afternoon of nothing. Yeah. So I decided I was going to take a nap. Okay. Right? Just, you know. Oh, that's like finding gold right there. It's like, there. great, I'm going to take a nap. Yeah. Um, in fact, my, my son is big on like what his themed birthday is going to be. Mm-hmm. And I tell I keep telling him, he goes, Dad, what's your birthday going to be? On my birthday, we all take a nap. And he goes, no, that's a horrible birthday. And I go, no, <laughs> you'll find out. That's actually a great birthday idea. Um, and so I took a nap, and then I went out and replaced three sprinklers, 
which I hate to do because you have to dig up your lawn. Yeah. And you, you know, causes other problems as you're doing that, but they mm-hmm. all work. It's great. It was a successful operation. Okay. And I was able to trim a bunch of branches off the trees and kind of trim up some of the bushes around the yard. This was on Father's the, Day or Father's Saturday. Weekend? This was Saturday. Oh, my goodness. This past Saturday. Oh, this past Saturday. Yeah. Okay. So I had some about three, four hours, and I didn't have – I had some things that I might do, and I, when I got one of those done, I went, what, what was the next thing I might do? I'll do that one. And I just yeah. kind of took some tasks, and it wasn't like a big like to-do list, and I'm going to have to check all this stuff off. It's just things that have been out there. I wrapped a bunch of projects up and felt like I accomplished some things. Yeah. And I didn't ruin the yard. That's the important thing. Yeah. That's kind of my goal is to just don't ruin the yard. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm not even succeeding in that. The grass is dead, but uh, it's a beautiful yard other than the the dead grass. It's all about setting that low bar. Yes. And then hopping over it. So I actually did get to take a nap on Father's Day. I think I nodded off for about 20 minutes, and it was delightful. That was my Father's Day gift for Father's Day. Speaking of nodding off... We have a student producer who's been nodding off for more than 20 minutes, I think. We won't say names, but uh, we'll see what he's cooking up in there. Cooking with cooking with Kiko is the name of his show. What's anyway, <laughs> we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to be replaying that interview that was conducted by Matt Townsend. Men and grief and uh, whether or not it's healthy to bottle up that emotion and bottle up the grief that, that men might have from time to time. When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Feelings are something we all are entitled to have, no matter what our gender is. But sometimes it can seem as though people think men should be immune from feelings and emotions. If you see a man cry, you may look the other way to avoid feeling uncomfortable. Rick Belden, a respected explorer and chronicler of the psychology and inner life of men, says most men routinely reject vital aspects of themselves and their histories because they do not want or do not know how to feel and move through their grief that is bound up and waiting inside them. He joins us today from Austin, Texas, to discuss the dangers of men bottling their grief and what we can do to help them. Rick Belden, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, thanks, Matt. Thanks very much for having me on. You bet. Honored to have you. It really is an interesting um, subject because forever, I guess, it seems like we've told, you know, boys don't cry and just rub dirt on it. You'll be fine. And yet, um, but dealing with emotion is a major, it's a major part of life, right? You're not going to get out of life without having some emotional situations that have to be managed. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, I was actually listening to the last hour and uh, listening to you speak with Amy. Yeah. Um, and hearing some of the things you said. And uh, yeah, I, I think that there's a there's still, even though in my perception, my observation, there is a lot of encouragement. There's a lot of uh, direction. There's a lot of even pressure for uh, men to to show themselves as being more emotional, to express more feeling. At the same time, there's almost a, a, a perception that men are not as emotionally complex and their lives are not as emotionally rich as women's are. Mm. 
Um, and I think that that acts as you know a force of discouragement for men uh, to who just kind of potentially accept that and think, well, you know, the reason I'm not able to sort of express feelings so much is that I just don't have them. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, I think you're on to something. And men need, we just need like, it also seems like role models and examples. I mean, how many times has it been where like a president, you, you just can't cry. Presidents don't cry. And if you cry, it's like the death, you know, it's like the death mark. Um, but it's it's almost in everything we do. Is it is it is it cultural? Is it parental? Is it just our genders? How do we how do we instill this idea that men are too tough to cry? Well, I think it, I think it has. Uh, there are aspects of all three of the things that you mentioned. Um, there are certainly cultural prohibitions. I would say against men showing certain um, characters of emotion and, and, and crying uh, is is one of those. Uh, I, you know, I can speak from my own situation, certainly uh, my childhood experience in the family, not just in the family, but also at school, um, deeply affected my ability to access that part of my emotional life and to sort of be with it and express it and feel safe with it. Um, but, uh, and I'm not someone who's an expert in these areas, but I think there are some uh, some actual physiological issues uh, having to do with hormones and having to do with, I, I, I don't hold me to this, but I, I think I read somewhere once that men potentially even have, on average, smaller tear ducts than women do. Yeah, no, I've heard that, um, too. And, and an yeah. aversion. I've even heard of men having, in some research, that men have an aversion to tears. So when they smell tears, they actually are repulsed. They repel where women, when, when it sounds weird, but in the test they were having them smell different things, and one of the things were, were human tears, and men were repelled by it where women were kind of more attracted or pulled to it. Yeah, I've, that's, a, that's a good point. I remember reading about that myself. So, you know, the, it's the old nature versus nurture argument to some extent, and there are some – I think there probably are some inherent differences in terms of physiology between men and women that have an impact – but uh, I think the the bigger sort of factor is the sort of what a man sees as cultural expectations, and also potentially even bigger than that is his personal experience as a child. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, you know that's kind of that's where I tend to center my work because that's what brought me into this you know from a personal standpoint in the first place. Yeah, I love that too because. I know that I'm handing my genes down to my children, and so if they could see me manage my emotions, share my emotions, and, and be open about my feelings instead of stuffing them, then I might be able to teach my kids how to do that. And it, 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 there are things we can hand down to make this healthier. What what should we be doing? How like how do men? productively, I mean, in their mind, how do they effectively manage grief? Well, uh, you know, again, I have to kind of go back to my own situation and my own experience. And also, I've I've spent a lot of time sitting in uh, men's groups with other men Mm -hmm. and observing this. And I think that the maybe the biggest part of it, well, there are several parts that are big, I'll put it that way. One of the biggest roadblocks for me was dealing with shame. Um, I had so much shame around crying, around um, showing vulnerability, anything kind of in that arena. 
uh, brought up a tremendous amount of shame for me, but nothing brings up as much shame for me as, as crying in front of another person. Um, I literally still, if I'm uh, working in a therapeutic setting where I, where I know it should be safe, and it, and it should be actually encouraged and accepted, I still frequently have to cover my face with my hands mm. because I have so much shame around it. Yeah. Um, so I would say that, that shame is a big stumbling block for a lot of men, uh, that, that has to, there has to be some strategy for that, and also fear. Um, I, have, I don't think I'm alone in this, but I have an enormous amount of fear uh, of crying. It feels death-like to me. Something's wrong, like out of control almost. Yes, exactly. I'm very afraid that I'm just I'm just going to go crazy. I'm not going to be able to take care of myself. And also, there was in my case there was there was punishment uh, as a child for crying. If you don't stop crying, I'm going to give you something to cry for. Mm. And it was you know it wasn't an idle threat. And um, so any and and this you know I think this affects men more than women for a lot of reasons. But certainly there are girls that grow up with those kind of threats too. Yeah, and it's a real inhibitor. Um, and so, and that's so the, the shame and the fear, I think, are two things that, as an individual, uh, or if you're a therapist who's working with men, you have to recognize that those things are probably going to be present to some degree in a man who's having trouble, uh, having difficulty accessing grief. Oh, and, and, um, there's something too. I, I look at my clients where that are males that, that, are, that don't seem to have any shame or any fear of it. And just emoting and caring, and I sit there and I think, "Wow, you are so lucky to just not care to do that." But interestingly, too, I've even seen relationships where the guy became too emotive, and the female got sick of it. And I, then I'm yes. thinking, "Oh, don't don't discourage emotion that's healthy and positive. Don't don't don't, um, because it's such a rare thing to see with my clients." Yeah, I, I, you know, and that's an important observation too. A lot of, a lot of the the way that men approach grief and expressing it uh, is going to be heavily influenced by uh, the way that their mother uh, reacted when they were a child to their tears and their upsets, and also to the way that they think that their partner or any woman you know, just in general, might react to that. Uh, that could be another real inhibitor, too. And I've had the experience, I'm sorry to say it, and I think a lot of men have, too, where, you know, we're encouraged to open up um, by a woman that we're close with. And when we do, and it's not even her fault, she just doesn't know how to handle it. And it's like, whether it's overt or sort of gentle, it's like, I need to shut this guy down because this is getting out of control and yeah. I don't know what to do with it. Oh, that's so hard. Now, Rick, let's do this. Let's take a break and come back. I want, to, I want you to give us some keys, some tools for what we can do as men and if, you know, people that love men to be able to, to make it a little easier for guys to get, let their emotion out. Again, Rick Belden is his name. If you go to his website, rickbelden.com, he's a poet, an author, an artist, great website, uh, wonderful tool to help us, I think, um, understand um, our emotions a lot better. And, and also just as men to, to at least hear what other men think. It's um, it might it might free you up quite a bit. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Helping you see the good in the world, guys. We gotta let the emotion out in a healthy way. Stick with us. We'll show you some tools in just a few minutes. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we've got to figure it out, guys. Emotions are part of being human. And uh, a lot of times the way we were raised, the way we were socialized, we may have been told it's not right, it's not healthy, big boys don't cry, except life is going to throw you curveballs where you need to be able to share your emotions. And Rick Belden is joining us. Uh, Rick Belden is a writer and an author. We found one of his writings um, on Huffington Post. You can find many of them there. He, you can also um, just go to rickbelden.com, a great resource for everybody. Uh, as, as we're trying to understand the inner lives of men, uh, Rick, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Matt. This is a great discussion. This is fun for us. And I, I need to – I mean I really think it's important because – as guys, we will. We'll just stuff it in, won't we? And then what I see is a lot of times it just comes out in uglier ways, right? Yeah, or it comes out in illness. Um, yeah, Or sickness. it comes out in, in you know, uh, failure patterns that yeah. are real frustrating that we just can't understand. It's like, I'm doing my best. Why does this keep happening? Well, and especially the shame. And if you're already prone to have shame and fear around emotion – then the more failures you have, the more lack of success you have will only create more fear, fear and failure. So that becomes exactly. a cycle. Yep, it does. Oh, that's painful. What are some things, Rick, that you've just seen in all of your work uh, that are – what are some things we can do? What are you seeing are successful ways for men to, to, to get used to getting their emotion out in a healthy way? Well, we could talk about this for a long time, but I'll try to Yeah, no, you've got so many articles. In fact, on your website, I mean, just listen to a few of these. Um, Men in grief, what if he cries? Healing is not for wimps. What do you need right now? I mean, there's so many of these topics that people need. Yeah, what if he cries is not to self-promote, but I mean, I think that's a really good one for folks that, especially for women uh, that are, you know, trying to understand how do I support this guy that I'm with? I can see that he's in pain. And it seems like when I try to approach him to encourage him, uh, you know, to show me his pain, he backs up. Um, and it's not a thorough ex- uh, exploration of that, but I think it, it, it's a good intro- introduction to some of the things that women and partners and, you know, people that want to be supportive can, can do and how they can approach a man. And a lot of it has to do with just, uh, you know, giving the man the space that he needs and, you know, try to be patient, try to be respectful and, and be a good witness and to let them define their own process and, and their own pace and their own terms. Hmm. Because uh, you said something earlier that I was actually going to say, you talked about the fact that, you know, people say that women work best face to face, men work best shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. Um, so that, that dynamic gets a little complicated when a woman's trying to support a man. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Because <laughs> she's eye to eye and he, he'd like to turn and let's go work on it. Yeah, and so if he turns shoulder to shoulder with you, that doesn't mean that he's turning away from you. That means he's trying to move into his natural mode uh, so that he can process things in a way that feels True. safe and at the right pace and everything. And, and uh, you know, a lot of men are used to being shut down. Uh, we, you know, we referred to that earlier. And, uh, and a lot of people, not just women, but men and women, are they find it distressing when someone else is crying and they want to hand them a box of tissues. Mm. And they want to basically get them to stop. And some of that's compassionate, and I think some of that's discomfort. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so I think that's one of the biggest challenges for anybody. And I was in a men's group a few months ago, and one of the guys started to cry, and I almost had to bolt myself to the couch not give him the tissues. Uh, and I know better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so, so true. 
So it's so true. Those are some things that you know, from a from a supportive standpoint, from the standpoint of you know, uh, an individual man, you know, trying to like, how do I approach this stuff? Um, I think one of the most important things that he can cultivate is a, a better sense of what's happening in his body, moment to moment. Uh, because I've seen this in myself, I've seen it again in, in men's groups over and over again, you know, having trouble, you can feel that something wants to express, you can't quite get there, but if you can just kind of focus in and go, where am I feeling, what am I feeling in my body right now? Well, I'm a little, I'm feeling a little, little choked up, you know, mm-hmm. I'm feeling a little bit of energy in my chest, and I've just seen over and over again with myself and others that, you know, particularly if there's somebody to help facilitate, but you can learn to do it yourself, uh, if you can stay with that, um, it actually, the body really is the gateway for these things to start to move. And I think it's a, it's a source of information that, that men can trust if they develop some experience with it. No, I love that too, because you, when your body does start, like your heart's racing or your mouth is drying up or whatever, it also could, if you don't pay attention to it and understand it, you, you might actually react more to it, which might make it worse. Yes. yes. So, so then so you can actually be confident of- in what your body's doing. Yeah, and it, and again, it takes trial and error. Yeah, uh, I mean, it takes practice, and you know, honestly, uh, I spent from December through uh, whatever it was, the end of March, four months straight. I went into the deepest period of grieving I'd ever been in in my life. Wow. Um, and it it some of it was just downright frightening, uh, but but experience breeds confidence. Yeah. You know? Um, and so it still scares me, but I feel more confident now. It's like, oh, yeah, I cried 40 times in three months. That's more than I've cried in the last 10 years, and I'm still alive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I yeah, feel yeah. Uh, so that would be my, I guess that would be kind of another recommendation is like, you know, develop experience in, you know, in the best ways that you can and try to find, it's not easy for men to find support for this. Um, no. It just isn't. I wish it were. Um, but that doesn't mean don't look. Right. Know? That's what I think your articles, I think, are powerful because even just getting into a few of them, it'll at least broaden their perspective and make them realize that a lot of what they're going through is normal. It will just normalize some of this. Yes, yes. I mean, again, I've seen it over and over again with myself and other men in groups. It's just it, there is men's there is so much going on inside men, um, and but we don't really have good outlets for it. And, mm. and it's not enough. You can't just you can't just tell guys, okay, start emoting now. <laughs> right. You know? Ready, I mean, go. Yeah, it doesn't work that right. way. And also, you know, it's it's really, I think it's actually ethically wrong to sort of insist that people open up when the support's not there for them mm-hmm. because, they're, because you need some support. Because if I do open up and then you can't handle me opening up, like that was another study that was out there that women always say they want to know what we're thinking. But then when we tell them, they're like, what the... Yeah. You're out of control. Then that yeah. scares them, and then then all of a sudden it it's not as safe. And I don't blame them because no, right. they don't know either. Exactly. Nobody's very few people have seen this stuff modeled, you know, in real life. Um, so it's it's I think it's completely to be expected that the man doesn't quite know how to go about it, and if he starts to, the woman thinks, oh, my God, I don't really know what to do here. It would be better if he just sort of like took the tissues and stiffled a little bit and we could call it done. <laughs> right. Such good advice, though. Just that we got to get deeper, don't we, and understand it more and and figure out a way to get it modeled. And then also once, we, once we're modeling it and it's working, then we can call that success and then we know what it looks like. So it, it'll start to take some of the pressure out of it. 
Exactly. And it was honestly a complete mystery to me. 25 years ago, when I first uh, was in my first men's groups and the facilitators were talking about grief, and of course Robert Bly was very popular at that time, he was talking about grief. I had no clue what they were talking about. I honestly had no experience that I could reference for me to understand. I understood the dictionary definition, but from a personal experiential standpoint, I did not understand it. It has taken me years hmm. uh, because I was so blocked. Man, Rick, it's great stuff. We got to have you back because there's so many other topics we can talk about about how to manage the negative emotion or the or the anger and other emotions as well as shame. So, Rick, we'll have you back, and we appreciate your time today. Yeah, I'd love to come back. I enjoyed it a lot. You bet. Everybody, okay. go check out the website rickbelden.com. Uh, great resource, really, to just start to understand the men around you. This could be your dad, also your husband, sons. Interesting, interesting insight, I think, for all of us. We'll have more with Rick Belden um, in the next few months as well. Stick with us. We're going to take a break. Go visit two of our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. See what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. It's that time of the program when we head over to uh, Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. They had kind of a big weekend, and uh, we're hoping that they'll tell us a little bit about it. Spencer and Jerem, how are you? It was a great weekend. We teamed up to buy Lego Batman, Jeff. <gasps> yes. You're, you, you, wait, you teamed up to buy it? Yep. So we how certainly did. I do not need the digital Blu-ray and DVD. In fact, oh. I don't need one of those. I because my next question was going to be how did you figure out the logistics of you that? Want you want know? in on this in the future? Uh, as yes, the DVD guy. Yes, I often do that myself. I'll get the you know the Blu-ray, the DVD, and the the digital copy, and then I'll hand out the others to other people. Okay, Jerem's the digital copy guy. I'm the Blu-ray guy. You can be the DVD guy. You can be the DVD guy. Uh, this is already <laughs> this is not starting out so well. Wow. Okay. Um. So Lego Batman. Um, what's the next one that you're going to buy? And I'll think about it. I don't know. Well, we'll pro- it'll probably be movies that we aren't interested in as much as our kids are interested yes. in. Yes. And we also happen to have some interest in. Okay. Well, in those cases, I get the, the uh, digital copy. Pro- Cars 3 or something. Uh, ah, never mind. Yes. Never mind. Um, anyway, so before we, we talk about uh, some of the highlights of your weekend, I want to give you the highlight of my weekend Please do. And you, you probably heard about this this little thing that happened yesterday. Five runs scored off of four wild pitches from the same pitcher. Was this the Dodgers? The Doyas? Well, yes, yes, it was. <laughs> the Doyas. <laughs> Cody Bellingham hitting another one. See, and that's the thing. That's not even the highlight of the game because yeah. Cody Bellinger hitting two home runs is kind of old hat. That's kind of the same. What does he have, 24, 25 home runs? 24, Jeez. yeah. Four wild pitches to score five runs. The Dodgers were behind. It's pretty and awesome. One in dramatic fashion. Wait, Your weekend was made thanks to the hashtag Bellinger. By the way, did you see ESPN's headline in reference to a Seinfeld episode about Cody Bellinger? No. You need to go and look I love at Seinfeld it. and I love Cody Bellinger. Then you will appreciate it. Okay. Go and look at it. So hat what so what am I looking up? Hashtag Cody Bellinger well, or just look up just look up. Cody Bellinger, ESPN, Seinfeld. I'm going to do it. And see what comes up. You better believe it. Man, I wish the Dodgers were playing good baseball right now. 
Uh, They've only won tenth, 10 in a row. Tenth straight win. <laughs> one game back from having the best record in baseball. Not bad. Listen, both Not of bad. your teams are playing really good baseball. My team got off to a red-hot start and has since been tanking. Wait a minute. So who is your team and who is Jerem's team? Jerem is a Northwesterner. He's a Mariners fan. Which hey, I like the Mariners. The Mariners. Are at 500 I right lived now. there. I lived there for five one years. Game under 500. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, I'm an Orioles fan. I grew up a Cal Ripken guy. Ah, yeah, Cal Ripken Jr. He's to me. No, no, no. He embodies. Senior. He liked Senior more, and then... he embodies all that is good in baseball. Cal Ripken Jr. He was great at showing up. What he broke the record for most consecutive games, right? Yes. Yeah. He didn't miss a game in like 20 years. That's insane. Which is what a bonker. What a fool. Take a day off. Yeah, he's still showing up even though they don't they <laughs> told him not to come anymore. It's an incredible streak, but it's like take it easy. <laughs> wow. He is the original Iron Man. Eat your heart out, Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> so what was what was the best part of the uh BYU football media day? We will discuss our top five takeaways. Yeah, it's funny that you <gasps> ask us that. Really? Because that's what we're talking about today. Obviously, Lavelle Edwards is at the top of the list. Oh, yeah. And his legacy will never die, and that was continued to uh, be made manifest from Friday. We knew this, but it was reemphasized in a clear way, not only by the patch that the team will wear this season on the jerseys, which is very cool, that has his likeness and says Lavelle on it, but also the coaching tree show was very cool to see his influence. Not we talked about his influence with the players. His influence in coaching in college and in the NFL is pretty wild. So that was a pretty cool show in the afternoon on Friday. By the way, if you missed anything from BYU Football Media Day on BYU Radio or BYU TV, those are all on the apps that you can uh, listen or watch for free. Awesome. Hey, I, I don't know if you knew this, but I uh, got to interview Karen Mangum on Friday. How, how was Karen? She's so cool. And she's apparently cool. She's, uh, joke, she's got a daughter who's going to be playing BYU basketball. Abby. Yep. Yeah. It's awesome. So uh, anything else you're going to be talking about on the show? None of your business. <gasps> Whoa. You'll wow. just have to wait and listen. Or we'll tease you. Uh, Jacob Brugman <laughs> did something he had never done with the Oakland A's, uh, a first in the majors. Also, Colton Shaver made his decision from BYU baseball. Is he going to join the Astros or not? And this Eric would be a great Mika time to do it. Playing on a summer league team. Which team? We'll tell you coming up. And Ashley Hatch continues to score goals. Are you guys going to start playing the Mika song whenever you talk about him on your show? What is the Mika song? Come on, we we go over this every time. Maybe you Let's just want me to it sing again. it. This sounds I, like a I conversation lost. with my wife. I'm totally lost. I told you this. Remind me. I can be brown. I can be blue. Oh, yeah. I can be violet sky. I can be happy. <laughs> I can be purple. I can be another <laughs> The guy that sounds Pretty like good. Freddie Mercury. That is good. Yeah. Well, good. keep your eyes peeled for a uh, a DVD that I would actually want to watch, and I might consider going in on that deal with you. Okay. Okay. All yeah. right. All Maybe right. you get the Ultra HD 4K, the Blu-ray, <laughs> and the digital. Yeah. Oh, gosh. At least it's not the VHS. Yeah. Although I do own one. I, own mm. I do. I've I do been toying well. with the idea of getting a Laserdisc. Oh, Laserdisc. Bill Nye the Science Guy. Excuse me? That's what I watched on Laserdisc. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Substitute teacher, just pop in an LD, bro. 
I just I'm not a big fan of having to turn it around to the other side halfway through the movie though. Not a fan. Yeah. Anyway, technology advancements are fantastic, aren't they? Well, you can uh, keep me out of the loop or keep me out of the Cars Three purchase, but uh, we'll we'll circle back and I'll I'll go in on the next one. You got it. Okay. Okay. Have a great show, you guys. Thanks, Jeffrey. Bye. That's rude. The DVD copy. Which of those three would you prefer to have, Cole? So, the Blu-ray is the correct answer because I like having the physical thing. Okay. Um, but I understand the appeal of the digital copy because yes. then you don't have to have the thing. Your kids will never destroy it. Right. No matter how hard they try. The DVD is the only wrong answer in that equation. So that's the one that they're trying to pawn off onto some third guy. But aren't there Jeff machines... Jeff is always that third guy. <laughs> exactly. Aren't there certain machines that will kind of convert the quality to a higher quality or you know especially if you put in a dvd i think they can do that i believe you that technology (laughs) sounds realistic all right anyway we've got one more empty news story that we want to share with you before we go into our hero story of the day it is an old it is only in silicon valley kind of a story as police say high-tech thieves were caught stealing thousands of dollars worth of gps tracking devices from a santa clara tech company these devices kind of look like cell phone chargers so they probably thought they had some kind of street value the business owner said the moment we realized they had a box of trackers we went into recovery mode we notified the police and equipped them to track the devices and in about five or six hours it was done Before making off with about $18,000 worth of the devices, uh, the thieves grabbed a drink out of the fridge and cut themselves in the process, leaving fingerprints and blood evidence. The two men were arrested in Alameda, or Alameda. The storage locker was found to contain drugs and other stolen property. There was lots of stolen property in that storage uh, storage locker, including a photo album that has that had irreplaceable images from World War II that was taken in a recent burglary. Oh, my goodness. So every time a crook stops and gets the munchies and tries to eat or drink something that doesn't belong to them, that's when the trouble starts. Exactly. And, you know, I've been robbed before. And uh, I, I, I lived in a home with, like, five other guys And it was basically just my stuff that was stolen. One of my roommates left the window open, so they cut the screen, came in, stole my, at that time, fiancé's computer. And they went into the cupboards and stole my granola bars and some loose change. And my roommate, who had all the DVDs and Nintendo Wii, he had conveniently moved out like two days before that. Mm. Yeah, I had a roommate that would always leave the door unlocked, and he didn't have any problem with it because in the front room of our living room, there were three TVs and two Xboxes and DVD players and computers and all this sort of thing. Um, None of it was his, and um, anything that he had was valuable was back in his room. Smart. Smart. Anyway, uh, we like to end, as you know, the show each day with our hero story of the day. A 14-year-old girl fell from the sky ride at Six Flags Great Escape in the Lake George area Saturday evening. A witness, Lauren uh, Lauren Lent, said it was a slow-moving chair ride that goes through the park and that a young teenage girl was hanging from a chair by just her arms and head. Police say the, 14, the girl was 14 years old. Lauren Lent said his wife 
daughter and two of her friends were on the ride at the time. It was around 7.45, and he heard her screaming. He and the other kids looked up and saw the teen hanging from the chair. The Saratoga County Sheriff's Office says the operator brought the ride to a stop after receiving a radio transmission from park staff on the ground that a rider was in distress. Lent said the girl's friend screamed that the bar on the chair was choking her. Here's the hero part. Some bystanders decided to do something, and they got together and told the girl they could catch her and to wiggle loose. Police say the girl fell from the car, hitting a tree branch on her way down and landing in the crowd of park guests and employees gathered underneath. They were able to catch her, but Lent says watching it all unfold was difficult. You don't know what to do. I mean, you know, you understand that you know somebody falling from 35 feet in the air could cause damage to you or whoever you're catching her with, but it's better off to suffer a minor injury to save someone from a serious injury, and that's what those guys ultimately did. The girl was treated by Park Emergency Medical Personnel and then transported to Glens Falls Hospital. She was then later transported to Albany Medical Center, where police say she remains in stable condition. Luckily, officials say she did not suffer any serious injuries. There you go. People grouping together to cushion the fall. It could have been death. Probably should have if they weren't there. So, just another example of our heroes. We'll uh, share another hero story tomorrow here on The Matt Townsend Show.